This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. For some, it is time for you to ask questions on any subject. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. That's because it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. anything. That's right. Uh, It is your opportunity to ask questions about anything you're genuinely curious about. Whoever comes up with the most interesting question, the most creative question, at least as determined by Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and Kenneth, will get a prize of some sort. Chances are it's something from the other side of Midnight Store. And uh, so make them good. All right. We have a full bank of calls. I'm going to try and get to as many as we can throughout the course of the hour. Let me begin with Igor in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, uh, I really enjoyed your piece last night about Pat Buchanan. Thank you. You have such a a well-curated show, and the fact you take time to put stuff like that together just makes a real difference. Thank you. You know, I also have to give credit to uh, Alex Barnard because – I, I sent him uh, a, a bunch of audio, maybe 45 minutes before the show, and gave him some vague idea of what I was looking for in each clip, and he was able to pick out some some very good clips. So uh, I, I uh, you know, I wish I had started working on that earlier, but we started that about 45 minutes before the show, and uh, but for Alex's assistance, we wouldn't have been able to do that. So thank you. Okay, yes, well, that is so correct. nicely. Hey, so Frank, I wanted to ask you about Pat Buchanan. You know, I, I loved him on TV. I thought it, he's an extraordinarily bright guy. I always loved his, hearing his opinions, even if I didn't agree with him. And and I always got a sense that he was able to write a script. I know he's, he was a speechwriter. But in his mind, do you think that he felt that he could really run for the presidency and win the presidency? Or in his heart, do you think he really felt he was a guy who could be in the Oval Office but not the president? No, I, I do think, especially in 96. Look, in 96 – he could have been um, the, at least the nominee, right? I, there's no way uh, to know if he could have beaten Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a popular president at that time, so I don't know that any Republican could have beaten him. But in 1996, look, he did it very well. He won the New Hampshire primary. He won a bunch of other primaries. Uh, so I do think that um, I do think that he could have won in 1996. You know, in Bob Novak, Novak's book, uh, he and, and and he obviously knew Buchanan for a long time. He says that he doesn't understand why Pat continued to behave the uh, the way that he behaved after uh, after winning in New Hampshire. And it was clear that, um, you know, that Buchanan uh, could have had a chance at winning the 
the nomination, meaning he continued to run around with uh, with a rifle and a cowboy hat and uh, continue to try to appeal to a constituency that he already had. So um, and I think Novak makes a good point. Uh, I think had um, Pat tried to moderate a little bit. Uh, then I think that uh, I think maybe he would have had a chance at uh, at resting the nomination from uh, from Dole. But oh, no very, doubt very about good. it. I absolutely can believe it. Thank you very much, uh, Igor. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Pete in Piscataway. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Uh, you're a picture in the 1960s. What three sloggers would you fear to face at bat? Oh, um, Let's see. Uh, Look, obviously Mickey Mantle. Uh, I'm going to say Mickey Mantle, uh, Willie Mays, and um, I'm going to say my other one is probably going to be, let's see, the 60s. Um, My other one is probably going to be, I don't know, maybe maybe Harmon Killebrew. I would have picked Frank Howard. He would have scared me to death. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Frank Howard, I'm a great admirer of uh, of Frank Howard and I think uh he, I believe he just passed away actually um really? yeah uh, he was uh yeah he he just passed away a week ago uh one of the oh, original New York Mets just passed away so it's fu- you didn't know that huh no, he was no. He played for the Dodgers. Frank Howard. Frank well, Howard. I know, but what they did when the Mets first started in 1962, they loaded their no, team. You think of Frank Thomas? Oh, you're right. I am. I am thinking of Frank Thomas. Yes. Okay. See. Uh, yeah. Frank. Frank Howard. Right. You are. You absolutely are uh, right. But uh, Hondo was Frank Howard, right? Right. You, the reason I ha- I can picture him in a Met uniform is because in the early to mid-90s, I think when Jeff Torborg and Dallas Green were managing the Mets, he became the uh, first base coach of the Mets. And um, to your point about what a big, intimidating guy that he was, he would always kneel the same way in the coach's box at uh, you know near first base because he was the first base coach. And there was actually a brown indentation in the grass at Shea Stadium because of the way that Frank Howard would always uh, plant his foot in the same spot and because he was uh, such a big guy. And uh, he is... He is still alive. I, I didn't want. I didn't mean to kill him off. He's 86 years old. I'm sure he's doing great. I uh, thank you very much for that, Pete. You know, it's funny on the radio one time. I accidentally uh, killed off uh, Tina Turner, which I did not mean to do, and I apologized right away. I think I also um, just the other day. I'm not going to say who it was because I don't want any bad mojo coming this person's way. But at home, I was talking with Rachel, and I said, you know, so-and-so, she just passed away. And Rachel said, what? No, I, I didn't hear about that. I said, no, I'm telling you, it was within the last month. And sure enough, I had this particular musician confused with someone else in the band that this musician was uh, was best known for. So uh, sometimes I do that. Maybe it's a sign of my coming senility, uh, which is my absolute greatest fear. That's uh, right. Frank. Whenever I'm uh, not so smart. Whenever I'm terrified that I'm uh, losing my mind and I forget something, I just uh, it really it, it plays on all my worst fears. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. It's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Don is in New Jersey. Hello, Don. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering when De Blasio and his little, all his minions were pa- uh, were painting Black Lives Matter signs all over the streets of New York. 
Could he have been charged and arrested for defacing public property? Well, uh, that's a good question, right? I mean, I brought this up with Scott Lebedo yesterday because de Blasio didn't have a permit any more than Scott had the permit for the Blue Lives Matter. I I think that's more of a legal question, but I I honestly think so. I'll be honest. I, um, you know, he controls the DOT, so maybe there is some way that he can give uh, anybody that he wants because he's in control of the DOT permission to uh, paint on a public street. But, I, I mean... My reading of the law, limited as it is, is that it wasn't legal. And I think that's probably why you don't see a lot of the Black Lives Matter murals in the places where uh, the mayor and uh, Al Sharpton were painting them at the time. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Nick is on Long Island. Hello, Nick. Hi, Frank. How's the radio I gave you a few months ago? It's doing great. I still use it uh, all the time. It's doing great. Hey, by the way, Nick, you're you're a young man, right? What are you, 17, 18? 17 now, yeah. 17. So some smart aleck on Twitter uh, said to me yesterday when I was talking about Pat Buchanan and referring to how some of our younger listeners may not remember this, I he said... Oh, boy, that Frank Moreno's really something. He has no younger listeners. All his listeners are over the age of 65. So you got to find that guy. Uh, I think his name's Brooklyn Johnny or something. And let him know that uh, we do have a fair number of young listeners. Uh, yeah, I'll write that down. Thanks for that radio again. And uh, I have another radio in my queue for things that... Uh, that we need to, that that I that I dropped and I'm gonna have have to send you to fix. So thank you for that, Nick. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Two open lines if you want to call in with a question. Sal is in New Jersey. Hello, Sal. Hi, Frank. I'm not over sixty five. All right. Well, hey, reach out to that guy, Brooklyn Johnny, and tell him. Oh, okay. I'm twenty. Um, I'd like to know what you think about the death penalty for, let's say, kidnapping. Well, uh, I look, I am in the minority on this one in that I happen to not believe in capital punishment. But let's say that I did. Right. Let's say that I believed in capital punishment. I would not be in favor of uh, extending it to kidnapping. And here's why. Um, Basically, the same reason it hasn't been extended to rape uh, cases over the years, because if the death penalty is any sort of a deterrent, right, uh, then, which we could discuss, right? Do you really want a situation where if someone is committing a kidnapping or committing a rape, where they think, oh, this is a death penalty eligible crime that I'm committing anyway, I should just kill this person so that there's no witness to identify me and I have an easier time at trial. Um, the... The fact that you don't get the death penalty for kidnapping or for rape, that is uh, maybe the one thing that will lead someone to keep the person that they're raping or the person that they're kidnapping alive. If they're going to get the death penalty either way, then I think a lot of these miscreants that might do something like this have no incentive to uh, keep that person alive at all. So, no, I would absolutely not be in favor of uh, extending it to, uh, you know, to kidnapping or rape, for that matter. All right, 800-848-9222 with an upbeat question like that. I'd love to get some more lighthearted questions if uh, if you have anything fun that you have questions about. 
relationships. But the baseball one was fun. Relationships, movies, Star Trek, Atlantic City, the mob, uh, anything kind of history, anything fun, anything hypothetical scenarios, any questions about my personal history, anything at all, anything fun out of the box. I know the judges tend to view those questions pretty favorably. Mike is in Colorado. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Mike. Good. Good to talk to you again. Um, So my question, and then I'll take my answer off the air. What do you do to help yourself fall asleep when you can't get to sleep? Like if you're having trouble sleeping, is there like any podcast you listen to? Um, What what do you do to help yourself get to sleep? Uh, Well, great question, Mike. Thank you. I would never listen, and I'm not recommending this to anybody else. I would never recommend... um, a podcast for myself. I wouldn't use a podcast that I'm interested in for myself if I'm drowsy and want to get to sleep. Because if it's a subject that I'm interested in, then it's going to keep me awake. It's going to keep me riveted and interested. So no, I wouldn't do that. So uh, I do. I did take yesterday, which I've been trying to avoid taking, um, some melatonin, and I did find that to be helpful. Sometimes a glass of wine can be helpful, so especially a couple of glasses of wine. And a uh, and a melatonin before you get on a plane. That's real helpful. But um, what what I tend to do is if, if you've tried everything, tried your glass of wine, tried your melatonin, you have done it all, right? Uh, sometimes if you can, uh, if you're with your partner and you can, you know, com- complete the act of being intimate with your partner. Some I can't speak for women, but a lot of times when it comes to men, that can help you sleep, right? If you simulate that act even by yourself, a lot of times for fellas, that can help you sleep. That being said, if all that doesn't work, I uh, will then um, sit there, lie there, and lie in bed resting for a while, for a while. And I, I was listening, I, I, someone else who had odd hours taught me this one time. He said, just lie there. Just lie there and relax with your eyes closed. Accept the fact that you're not going to fall asleep. But lie there with your eyes closed. Don't pick up your phone. That's the worst thing you could do. And uh, at least this way your body is getting rest. And then you sit there with your eyes closed. Maybe you try to do some meditation. Maybe you try to do some praying. I've done both. And um, just sit there and Appreciate the fact that while at least your brain is on overdrive, at least your body is getting some rest. And what will happen oftentimes is that you do end up falling asleep when you sit there in a sleep position, essentially mimicking sleep. You know, I'm reminded of that uh, Batman Begins with uh, Christian Bale and I believe Michael Caine as Alfred. I think there was there's so many Batman films, but I think this is the one. And uh, I believe Michael Caine is giving some advice to Bruce Wayne about putting on a show, about uh, having people not realize that he's Batman. And one of the things, if I remember the picture correctly, I haven't seen it in two decades. But one of the things that Michael Caine says to Bruce Wayne is if you keep pretending to have fun, eventually you may find that you actually have some fun. So that's kind of my philosophy when it uh, comes to sleeping. Go to sleep, and then if you need to, um, if you need to pretend to sleep, sometimes it will actually come to fruition. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. Whatever you have questions about, 
Now's the time to ask them. We're doing an Ask Frank Anything. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. playing this for two reasons. One, uh, singer Nedra Tawley of the Ronettes is 76 years old today. So happy birthday, Nedra Tawley. And I want to congratulate my uh, sister-in-law, Sharon, and uh, my co-brother-in-law, James, because uh, Sharon uh, gave birth to a beautiful baby boy by the name of Eric Pecan yesterday. So uh, we're very, very excited for them. And uh, they're probably listening in the hospital right now. We'll talk more about that later. And uh, he's a very handsome young boy, and he's doing well. So uh, looking forward to meeting him. And uh, Carmine seemed pretty excited to be an older cousin. So uh, he, now he is um, totally unspecial on the O'Brien side of the family. So uh, that is, uh, you know, because he's got all, he's one of many now. He's still the only grandchild on the Morano side. So, all right, 800-848-9222. We are doing a... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. All right, whatever you have, out-of-the-box questions, fun questions, hypothetical questions are great, movie questions, Star Trek questions, Atlantic City questions, questions, inside radio questions, whatever you have, now's the opportunity to ask them anything that you're genuinely curious about. Questions, if you're not sure what a question is, they usually begin with words like what, how, why, where, do, does. A question is not... A three-minute commentary and then um, you saying at the end, right? That's not a question. Ask questions that you're genuinely curious about. You have the whole show to pontificate about issues that uh, that you want to weigh in on. All right, 800-848-9222. Kelly is from WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Kelly. Hi. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for calling. <laughs> I... Um... I want to know, and I and I can tell you more background, but I'm a first-time listener. I just turned on the radio. I'm at the airport picking up my husband, and I want to know. I don't. I don't know what your politics are. It's the first time I ever turned on your show, and I was expecting either it to be obvious that you're liberal or conservative, and. I, I couldn't figure it out. So I'm just curious, as a first-time listener, what exactly are your politics? Well, I appreciate the question, and, Kelly. And I, and I, and I, have, and I, 
and I have a reason for sure, saying it, but sure. I'm so curious. Yeah, I, I'll give you the best answer I can, and then um, and then uh, you know, be happy to hear your your reason of saying it. And I appreciate you listening for the first time, and hope the airport pickup goes well. The the short answer is Kelly. Honestly, I have no idea what my politics are. Right, so I go. I pay very close attention to politics. I've been involved in politics for a long time. I voted for Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. Uh, I There are some issues, if you go down the line, where I am very right-wing. You go down the line on other issues, and I am super left-wing. The only label that I really feel comfortable with is independent. Uh, some people have tried to call me a libertarian over the years. While I do, uh, maybe I am kind of libertarian on a lot of social stuff, I don't really, uh, I'm not comfortable with that label at all. I I don't um, view myself as a libertarian. If I had to pick one sincere uh, overarching guidepost to my ideology such as it is, it would be that I think the people should have more power, right? Whatever that entails. Um, So um, sometimes that leads to kind of conservative impulses. Sometimes it leads to liberal impulses. But I am against, um, you know, I'm against courts striking down um, v- v- uh, laws that are democratically voted upon by the people. I'm against, um, you know, big, uh, big uh, corporations censoring uh, v- uh, free speech for the people. But I'm also against uh, big labor unions not giving their members an opportunity to, um, you know, to to express free speech that way. So I, I'm, if I, I can, I'm happy to tell you who I voted for in any particular race or what my position is on any particular issue. But um, I, I don't know what my politics are other than sometimes it's very right wing sometimes it's very left wing i love it i love it i i have i'm gonna listen again are you on every night or, or just on Absolutely. some night no every 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 weekday from 1 a.m to 5 a.m eastern you gotta gotta check us out make Unbelievable. us unbelievable thank okay. you okay it's it's a real find the reason i ask is because i grew up in a radio family In the 1970s and 1980s, my father was on KABC Los Angeles, and he was very, very liberal. Who was your father? And when Ira Fistel. Oh, I I never heard him, but I'm certainly familiar with uh, with KABC. He, for a time, there was a national network. He was um, he was on KBC. He was on WABC New York. Uh, he was yeah, carried I, in Massachusetts. I um, when I, I was act- up late at night in college, I would do my papers listening to him. Yeah, I actually talked about him when he passed away in October, uh, because uh, and if you email me, Kelly, and I'll put you on hold, Kenneth will give you uh, the, my email. My friend Doug McIntyre wrote a wonderful column in the uh, L.A. Daily News about Ira Fistel, and I read that column on the air, and I talked about how sorry I was oh. that I was not more familiar with Ira and Fistel. I only just discovered you. I can't believe that. Yeah, that's why I, I used to do my homework at the right next to the the mike in uh, kbc los angeles late at night i do my high school papers and he was liberal and i didn't think liberals were on the air anymore and when i heard you asking various questions like star wars and stuff i was like oh my gosh there is another one they're well, not all right wing and you know i don't know if he'd be rolling over in his grave but i'm a very conservative voter actually in my old age well some people think that first of, first of all um I'm of the belief that radio, especially talk radio, should really be primarily an entertainment medium, not a medium where people wage these 
ideological uh, warfare. But um, I'm curious, did you read that Doug McIntyre piece that I that I, I mentioned? I did. I pr- I printed it out and I and I saved it. Great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I feel I feel like it was fair. I feel oh, like no, it was absolutely. very fair. I couldn't agree more. But um, but well, thanks for thanks for listening, uh, Kelly. I appreciate it, and hope you'll uh, you'll listen again. And and whatever you can't listen, whatever you can't stay up, you know, you can always check out the podcast. Okay. You're a real, you're a real fine. Oh, that's Thank awfully you. nice of you. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's awfully nice. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Staying in WCBM in Baltimore. Let's say hello to Thomas in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. Frank, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, uh, what's your prediction on the uh, games this weekend? Well, uh, so I'll give you my prediction, but... Um, I will preface it with by with, by saying so far I have picked every single uh, week of the playoffs incorrectly, right? So I whoa, whoa, whoa. so I have been wrong every single week so far. So nobody should listen to me. That being said, I am wearing a 49ers jersey right now. I am rooting very hard for the 49ers, and my prediction is that we're going to see a rematch of the Super Bowl from three years ago. Uh, Chiefs, 49ers. That's where I think we're headed. What about the Bengals? Hey, look, I, I, uh, the best thing that could happen to them right now is to not have me rooting for them because all the teams that I've been supporting are out. I was rooting for the Giants. They're out. I was rooting for the Bills. They're out. I was rooting for the Jets. They didn't even make the playoffs. So, wait, wait, wait a minute now. Patrick McCombs. I don't think he's going to play this weekend. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. You know, you got to talk to Kenneth. He's the, our resident sports expert. My pick, Chiefs 49ers. They were able to play well last week, the Chiefs, even once Mahomes came out of the uh, game. I'm taking the Bengals. All right. I'm taking the Bengals. We'll see what happens. Call Monday, and we'll see where who was right, Thomas. 800-848-9222. Whatever you have questions about, please be sure to uh, ask them. 1-800-848-9222. Mark is in New Jersey. Hello, Mark. Thank you, Frank. The congratulations to Sharon. Uh, Thank you. Mark, uh, did you ever read uh, Alberto Moravia? No, I'm familiar with uh, Alberto Moravia, but uh, I have never read in all candor any of his books. I st- it's, I- your kind, it's your kind of book, and I want to tell to this guy who can't sleep to boil some mint and to drink it, to put some sugar and to drink it. Ten minutes later, so that, is, is that really works, boiling milk? Mint, mint, not milk. Oh, mint, M I N T. Yeah, that's the best way to. That's an older Italian recipe too. All right, I'll check it out. And hey, if you're going to recommend an Alberto Moravia book to someone, what would be number one on your list? Would it be The Conformist, uh, or would it be something else? La Chucala. What, uh, what was it? Give it to me again. Chucala. It means uh, the country girl. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I did see a couple of the films. Uh, that were based on his books, but I've never read uh, any of them. Honestly, I, I would. I'm not a big fiction reader. I have to be honest. I I, I wish I could read more fiction, um, but uh, I don't know. I, I have so such a finite amount of time to read that if I have the choice between reading a nonfiction book or reading the fiction book, I'll always choose the nonfiction. Always, and I'm sure that leaves me out in the cold, missing a lot of great books. But it's just my choice. All right. 800-848-9222. David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, Frank. I'm the same way regarding fiction and nonfiction books, by the way. Um, But um, my question is sort of an alternate history slash human nature question. 
Um, in the Dead Zone movie, there's a point where one of the people says to the other one, if you could go back in time and kill Adolf Hitler as a child, would you do it? I'm going to phrase the question differently. If you could go back and take a troubled child like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin and adopt them and bring them to the modern day, do you think you could change them from the terrible person they turned out to be into a better person? And if you returned them back to their original time when they turned 18, would history be different? Mm, that's, that is a brilliant question. And it's really another another aspect of the nature versus nurture debate. And you know what, David? I'll be honest. I do think that um, people's upbringing and their surroundings do affect the kind of person they become. So, yes, I would accept that challenge. And I do think if I raised Hitler that, um, you know, that he would not have uh, committed uh, a horrible genocide and he would have been a much better person. And I realize maybe that's an egotistical thing to say, but uh, I do think that's the case. I think uh, I'm sure genetics play a role, but uh, I think that uh, upbringing is very important. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Uh, I had a question for you. Uh, that Curtis has been going on this, uh, well, his rampages about how uh, the electric car makers, especially Elon Musk, is uh, not putting AM radio in his cars. Uh I don't know if that's true at all, because I don't have one. I don't know anybody who has a complete electrical car. But do you think that it's not their choice, but the uh, electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation causes too much disturbance with the AM frequency? I, I'm not that, sure. I'm not sure that I understand the question, honestly. Uh, um, what, what is the question? People, they're not offering the uh, AM radio Right, I understand station. that. I understand that. But what is your question exactly? Is it because they they just don't want to put it in or because uh, no, it's I, mean, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of people that probably would want something like a Tesla and would want AM radio. So, no, I, I don't think so. I, I buy the explanation by some that uh, that it's that it's due to electrical interference or uh, something along those lines. Uh, so I do think that that's the case. Let me say hello to Mike in New Rochelle. Hello, Mike. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I got a two-for-one for you here. I'm ready. It, I, I hope this never happens, but let's say Katz calls you up and says, Frank, due to budget cuts, we got to pair you up with somebody that already broadcasts on the station. Who would you pick to do the show with? And two, out of the three guys working with you tonight, you can only keep one of them. Who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me That'll try, have you twirling your hair. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Let me uh, let me let me work on the first question first, right? So wait, l- let me ask. Like, if I pick um, if I pick Sid, do I have to work Sid's hours? No, you, it's your show. You got to pick somebody to pair up with, though. Gotcha. Okay. You keep, your, you keep your show. Keep your hours. Keep everything. But one guy and and one broadcaster. Um. Yeah. Okay. So hours are the same. The only thing, the only thing that would be different would the would be the personalities. I'll tell you the first three that come to mind, and I'm gonna narrow it down, um, uh, you know, one at a time. The the three that immediately come to mind. And I like everybody that I know. I mean, I don't 
I don't know uh, Greg Kelly, say, as well as I know uh, Brian Kilmeade, but I like everybody. Uh, the three that come to mind are Sid Rosenberg, Curtis Lewa, and Dominic Carter. Uh, Dominic, because of his political knowledge and because we have such a long personal history and because we get along so well and work together so well. Uh, Curtis, uh, mostly the same reasons, and because Curtis is a, a real radio pro. But I'm eliminating Curtis because I think that he um, – he, he, I almost feel like I've done that already. I mean, we have um, worked together for the better part of twenty years, both on the radio and in politics. I, I don't know that we can it's, we can have any new conversations. Honestly, I'm sure we can, but um, I, the novelty is kind of worn off for me in terms of doing a daily radio show with Curtis. Um, so, really, I think it would be a question of Sid versus Dominic. I hate to – that's a real Sophie's choice, but if I had to pick one, I think I'm picking Sid. You know, Sid has a radio broadcaster's mind, right? Uh, and, you know, I don't know that people have an appreciation for how good Sid Rosenberg is on Hell the radio. no. Be- and I, and no, no, no disrespect to Dominic, who's, a, like I said, a close friend and knows more about politics. He's forgotten Why? more about politics than I'll ever know. But but in the case of Sid, right, he's shown an ability to work with a partner multiple times successfully, right? Uh, Dominic, I've never heard on the radio. I mean, I've heard him filling in with a partner, but never doing a daily show with a partner. So I I feel that Sid knows that sometimes a partnership is the, the total is greater than the sum of his parts. And I don't know that people have an appreciation for how many different skills of being on the radio, Sid has mastered. He um, is a brilliant storyteller. The guy is such a colorful character. The guy, and I mean that literally, the guy is as tan or as red, depending on the day, as you can be. And and he just leads such an interesting life um, because, you know, he he just, uh, following him around for a day, that's a reality show. And the fact that he's willing to tell so many of those stories and have a degree of honesty about those stories on the air is uh, really something very rare. And it's something I've sought to emulate. But he's also a very good interviewer. And you know how good of an interviewer Sid is? You don't even notice how good of an interviewer he is because he doesn't make these interviews usually about him. When I've been on with him, when I've heard other people about uh, on with him, he does ask leading questions. He doesn't make any bones about letting you know what his opinion is, and then he lets the guest kind of run with it. Um, but he's also a great monologuist. It, whether he's talking about the uh, designated hitter rule or the withdrawal from Afghanistan, he's able to do a monologue on any issue in the news as well as anybody, or the housewives, whatever. So I would probably pick Sid, but um, the runner-up would be Dominic, and then Curtis would be third. As far as these three, Kenneth, um, Matt Blaze, and Alex, that is a much tougher, uh, a much tougher selection, honestly. Uh, one, I would see which of them wanted uh, to stick around, uh, but they're all very good at their jobs, and I don't mean to punt, but blah um, blah 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 blah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I tell you, um, I don't know. I, I, I'd want to think about that, and I don't know that I. Uh, I don't know that I could pick just one. Um, uh, maybe that's un. Maybe that's unfair. I certainly don't want to hurt anybody's feelings if I can pick one. But um, some people I wouldn't mind hurting. Like Matt, I wouldn't mind hurting his feelings, but but I'm not ready to uh, excise Matt. You know, Matt has the most technical expertise, right? 
But um, I think Kenneth has the best attitude. But I think Alex may have kind of the best brain for topic selection and getting things done quickly. So that, I think it's a very good team, quite honestly. I don't know that I could pick one. Um, Kenny I, is only doing things that anybody could do. <laughs> I just hope uh, that nobody asks the, them that same question about Rita Cosby, Dominic Carter, and me, because I think somehow they would have a much easier chance, uh, much easier time answering that question. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Leo on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Hello, Frank. Uh I have a question. Uh, the Attorney General Mary Garland and uh, and uh, Robert who are obviously treating uh, different ways securing papers from uh, from uh, President Biden and from uh, President Trump. My question is: Do you think? Do you know, or do you think it should be part of the process of securing these papers as evidence to taking fingerprints of all? These uh, classified documents. I, I, again, I'm I'm lost, Leo. I don't I don't understand the question. The classified documents, which are secured from Biden's house, let's say Biden's garage. Right. right. Do you think they're taking fingerprints of these classified papers? Uh, you know, I I don't know. I'll leave that to the investigative authorities uh, to. Uh, to uh, to to figure out, I, I I really you know I don't pretend to be an expert in how classified documents are are handled, or I'll leave that to the DOJ. Right, I'm not going to second guess how they're they're handling this. If there is an opportunity uh, to get fingerprints, I would hope that they're you know trying to get some of those fingerprints off it. But I I have no idea. In all candor, Gary's in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. I asked this question basically out of curiosity and ignorance. Do you wear a headset when you do your show? I do uh, with so I could hear you pretty much. But I'm very, very cognizant of the fact that so many radio people uh, can't hear anything because they keep headphones on and keep the volume on them so high. For instance, you know, uh, two of the people that I just mentioned, Curtis Lee and Sid Rosenberg, they can't hear. Right. Bob Grant could not hear. I miss very tough time hearing. Um uh, Ron Kuby, very difficult time hearing. Now, Ron always told me that his issue was genetic. It wasn't due to uh, use of headphones. Joe Franklin, very tough time hearing. Obviously, Rush Limbaugh's uh, hearing loss was from something else, but same situation. So because of that, uh, I keep only one one ear on, and I try to alternate um, from time to time which which ear it is. So I do keep a headset on, but I try to do it with only only one ear. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Sarah in Wisconsin. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Frank. How are you? Good. Um, Let me just say, you can never get rid of Kenneth, okay? (laughs) Well, right. I have have called uh, Curtis twice and actually got through with Avery. Avery is the phone Nazi. Kenneth is the phone angel. (laughs) He's he's a very talented uh well not very talented. He is a you know what I like about Kenneth, I'll be honest. He's got a great attitude, right? So there've been other people oh. that have sat in that chair over the last, you know, 3 years that I've doing this show and they're they're annoying, honestly. They're they're annoying or they're incompetent or they're um they're they're just a cauldron of drama, right? I don't have to be afraid to say hello to Kenneth 
when he when he comes in and worry about a 20-minute conversation about what's wrong in his life today, which is going to distract me from from doing my job. So he just he just does his job, which is which is nice. And if he does it, if he makes a mistake, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame someone else. He just fixes it. And that that's what I like. It's a really it's a nice it's a really great attitude. So uh, I am not surprised to hear of the difference in attitude on the part of Kenneth versus Avery. Oh, definitely. And he's kind and he's articulate and he's and he just All right, Sarah. He's, what's your question, Sarah? Let's let's not He's going to kids going to ask for a raise by the end of the show. <laughs> and he deserves it. Um, I was watching I watched the ABC News in the morning at 3. I always listen to your show from 3 to 4 for sure, but I run ABC on. And across the screen, now I know there's a, a labor shortage that's just unbelievable, but I wondered if you'd heard this, because this tops everything. Philadelphia is hiring lifeguards that uh, aren't required to know how to swim. Well, I mean, if your question is, do I think that's good, I think that's terrible. No, I wondered if you heard that. Yes, I, I had not heard that, actually, uh, but I will uh, I will look into that. That's an interesting question. All right. And uh, and Kenneth, even your fans, tell them to get to their question right away. I mean, I mean, I understand the need to, you know, heap praise on you, but you don't have to coach them to to tell tell me and everybody else what a great job you're doing. Let me say hello to Steve on Long Island. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank, how are you? Great. Uh, I don't listen to the show too often, but I'm glad I, I, got, I got on tonight. Um, I want to file a missing persons report. I want to know where three people are. I want to know where Jesse Jackson is. I want to know where Patrice Colors is. And I want to know where Al Sharpton is. Because since this unfortunate incident in Memphis with the five black police officers that killed a black motorist, haven't heard a peep out of them. Well, uh, Sharpton is giving the eulogy at the funeral for uh, Tyree Nichols, so you will hear from him at that. Uh, J- uh, Jesse Jackson, as I understand, is uh, is sick, so I don't think you're going to be hearing much from him uh, publicly, really, ever again. And uh, I don't know that I'm familiar with the um, the other the Patrice uh, lady that you mentioned, but uh, I. She's the founder of Black Lives Oh, I see. I, well, she maybe she's busy in one of her multi-million dollar mansions, and uh, she uh, can't be bothered to make the trip to Tennessee. Uh, by the way, big shout-out to our listeners at WUCT in uh, in Tennessee. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I was just wondering if, um, hopefully not in my case when I'm on the phone with you, but uh, if you ever communicate to your, your screener or your producer, like either non-verbally with like – you know, mouthing like this guy's an idiot, or do you hold up signs like just conveying communications to each other that we don't know about? About the callers? Yeah, about yeah, the caller, yes. or, or mean, even but, just about personal m- things that are going on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, quite often. I mean, I think a lot of times my, um, you know, my my body language tells how I feel about uh, something that goes wrong. Uh, and I say a lot of what I have to say uh, on the air. I mean, when Kenneth puts up the wrong name for the person or the wrong town, that's very frustrating. But if, on, the, if there's someone that I just, uh, you know, you can't understand or I'm trying to talk about something upbeat and they put a, they bring on a quadruple um, quadruple amputee who um, is offended by my use of the word Polish or something. Then you know I, I will say to them privately, you know something, but uh, but nah, not I wouldn't say excessively. You know we, when I used to produce uh, Curtis's show, 
and he used to put on a he a really bad caller used to go through. Curtis used to give the middle finger to the call screener instantly, instantly. I mean, the call screener Andre. <laughs> if he put through a bad call in morning drive, Curtis would uh, would give them the middle finger, uh, it, and <laughs> among other things, among other things. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. We're doing Ask Frank Anything. First hour of the program. We have denunciations coming, and we have the. I'm really looking forward to this. Dan McMillan is going to be here. I had Dan on the show in August, and I've become a big fan of Dan and his work. He wrote this book about how could this happen, explaining the Holocaust, and it's a really fascinating book, thoroughly researched, and he's going to join us in the last hour of the program uh, in honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're going to talk about that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Cowboy. Well, I'm packing up my game and I'm going head out west Where real women come equipped with scripts and fake press Find a nest in the hills, chill like Flint Buy an old drop top, find a spot to pit Then I'm a kid rocking Kid Rock! Ten days ago turned um, 52 years old, can you believe that? Also, I believe the ex-husband of Pamela Anderson I don't know if they were ever married, I believe they were And uh, Pamela, and yeah, they were married for about a year and um, they, uh, Pamela Anderson is getting a lot of attention now because, um, I don't know, I mean, there's a memoir uh, out about her. They're doing profiles about her on CBS Sunday Morning. She uh, was recently on Broadway in Chicago. I'll tell you, I, um, I really like um, Pamela Anderson. I've, uh, she's been so defined over the last 30 years as kind of uh, a sex symbol, but I think she's a very... Deep person, and so much more than that. Seems like she's got a great sense of humor. I'd love to have her on this program sometime. I've always been a big fan of hers. And um, it's not surprising to me that Kid Rock, at least for a time, was as well. 800-848-9222. We're doing Ask Frank Anything in the next six minutes. Whoever comes up with the best question, as determined by Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and Kenneth, we will give you an opportunity to uh, win a prize of some sort. You will win a prize. Uh, so the thing that I would ask is everybody that's on hold, try to keep your questions short. Try to keep your questions short. Let me say hello to Ira in Maryland. Hello, Ira. Uh, yeah, well, my, my my question is why can't we, we have a billion-dollar price? Why can't we divide it into 10 equal, equal parts? Um, well, usually they have the price with an annuity, some kind of crazy. So just, you, just divide it, hope the pie in equal, in equal parts. So, Ira, are you talking about the lottery? Yes, right. So you want 10 equal prizes instead of one big prize? Right, right. Well, if there are multiple, you know, again, Ira, I appreciate the sentiment, but if there are multiple winners, then then they do share the prize, right? So, so, I mean, you sort of get that based on the numbers that you say. Who would you award if you're not awarding the people with the best numbers, right, or with the numbers that are picked? 
800-848-9222. Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah. I have some yes. curiosity here. Yeah. Was there ever a real a fairy hawk's bird? Uh, uh, hawk was there really a bird by that name? No, there were there are hawks, but no. The reason they're called the fairy hawks, the baseball team, is because of the Staten Island ferry. But no, there's no such bird in nature as a fairy hawk. There should be, if they're able to genetically uh, create a new bird, right? That's very good at playing baseball. They should name it a fairy hawk. I don't see any reason why not. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. I wanted to ask about the uh, sound bites or drops, as Ken called them. Is that something pre-selected on the fly? And uh, do you do them uh, or the soundboard operator? You know, Robert, that is a great question. That is uh, that is Matt Blaze. I wish I did. Right. And when I previously hosted um, this program on another station like that was just Matt Blaze. I uh, I did control it. And that's one of my great frustrations. I wish I could play all of the sound, and I'm working on a solution to make that happen. But uh, as of now, any sound that you hear other than my voice is played by Matt Blaze. Outrageous. Uh, eight, including that one. 800-848-9222. Lucy is in the Bronx. Hello, Lucy. Hi, I have a math concept problem. Sure. What's 100 divided by 3? What, it's, um, isn't it 33 and a third? Yeah, it is. So now what's 33 and a third times 3? 33 and a third times, I guess it's 99.9, right? Why isn't it 100? If I, 100 divided by 3 is 33.3, then the opposite equation should be 100 again. You know, I, uh, I, I can't answer that one. I think it has, uh, uh, that's above my pay grade. You know, I don't know a lot about math, but I, I think it has to do with the fact that I was kind of rounding when I say it would be 33 and a third. But that's fair. You know, look, I, I, there are a lot of things that I pretend to know about. Math is not one. I mean, I only got a 650 on my math SATs. So, uh, you know, not not exact. Or 640, I think. you got a problem. Yeah, it was a 640. So uh, I'm not – this is not the show to call in to with math questions. Not in the least. All right, 800-848-9222. Very quickly, who's got a uh, a quick – question here. I think Donovan may. Hello, Donovan. Hi, Frank. I've been on the show before. I'm the uh, bl- totally blind guy from Vancouver, Canada. Very quick question. If you had to lose one of your five senses, which one would it be? Well, obviously, I would prefer not to lose any. But if I had to pick one, I think the one that I could make the easiest adjustment uh, in losing is uh, my sense of smell. I'll be honest, I don't have that great of a sense of smell to begin with. My wife is always saying, can't you smell that? Can't you smell that? And I don't know if it's because of this sinusitis that I've had since I was a child. I don't have a great sense of smell to begin with. But uh, if I had to pick one, it would be that. I would rather not lose hearing. I would rather not not lose touch, taste, or, um, or, or sight, certainly. 
anything anything along those lines. 800-848-9222. Do we have time? Um, nah, I don't think we do. Hey, uh, Matt Blaze, you have a, uh, a pick. Uh, is there a consensus pick among you guys? Mike in New Rochelle, who you would pair up with. All right, Mike in New Rochelle, uh, call back, and uh, we will give you a prize of some sort. And ask Mike if I still owe him a phone call. I think I may, and then maybe we can I'll work on scheduling that for uh, – for Monday, Mike's a, a good guy. He sent me these CDs, which I still have not listened to, but uh, perhaps I will uh, try to do that this weekend. All right. Coming up in a moment, um, I'd love to hear any positive adoption stories that you have. And I'll tell you why. I, I saw a story that spurred my curiosity about this. But I'd love to hear if you know of an adoption story with a happy ending. Call me and tell me about it. 800-848-9222. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. across a uh, fascinating article the other day. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's a little lengthy, but I did uh, link to it on my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. It was written by a woman named Dorothy Ellen Palmer. And uh, I said this to my wife because it reminded me of something that occurred in her life. And her response was after she read the story, it made her cry. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It is a very... Um, very sweet story, but I'll give you the summary about about it. There, it's there was it's a story of a woman um, named Dorothy Ellen Palmer who was born in Canada at uh, Saint Michael's Hospital in Toronto in the summer of 1955, and um, within a week of her being born, there was. Another person born named Don, and these two were siblings. They had the same father and different mothers. They were born a week apart in the same hospital. These women were strangers. One was a 33-year-old nanny from Chile. The other was 24 years old and a stenographer, 7th generation, 7th Canadian, and um, a member of the Women's Royal Canadian Naval Service. And both of these women planned to relinquish their babies for adoption. So understand what occurred here. Same hospital, these babies born a week apart. The father of both of these babies had skipped town, had run off on both of them. And both of these babies were given up for adoption. In 2015, Dorothy Palmer listed her DNA on one of these DNA testing websites. And like a lot of other adoptees, it opened a door that had long been closed to her. And on Thanksgiving 2017, 
she matched a stranger in New Brunswick at a very high genetic linkage. And uh, this is the range. The range that she matched was the range for a half-sibling. A half-sibling. She connects with the person, Don, who she later learned was her brother, on Ancestry. Then there are emails. Then there are phone calls. May 23rd, 2018, Don and his wife, Anne, fly from St. John to Toronto, where they meet at uh, Don's daughter's condo. And they connected as kin. And she writes in this article, which... I have posted and I encourage you to read Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That over the last five years, as they've shared their adoption journeys, they have become super close and they've come to see that their stories speak volumes about adoption, myth, and reality, about the laws and social conventions that kept them apart for over a half century, about place, about culture, about language. Don, her brother, grew up in a loving home. Dorothy did not. Don speaks English and French. Dorothy does not. He's an athlete and a hockey coach. Dorothy is disabled. She's an English teacher and writer. Um, They're both divorced or separated, but it, it's just such an interesting story to me that uh, this woman, and it's lengthy. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's, uh, it's, it's a story I want you to read. And, and it's a long story, and I'm not going to do justice to it by reading it on the radio. And I'd like you to read the whole thing because that's the only way it does any justice to the story. And again, it's on my Facebook at uh, Facebook.com slash fan. But here is a, a, a pair of siblings that were born in the same hospital. Dorothy Ellen Palmer and her brother Don, born to different mothers in the same hospital a week apart. And she writes in this piece about how 60-plus years later, later they met for the first time and how she has discovered all sorts of other positive adoptee stories. And it reminds me of my friend Frank, who I was just talking with yesterday. He's a very close friend of mine. He discovered that he had uh, he knew he was adopted but he met his biological parents and they were from Canada and he now was actually closer with his biological family than he was including his mother than he was with the family that adopted him and he had a very loving upbringing and he was he had a good relationship both of his adopted parents passed away unfortunately but um, he had a very loving relationship and a very loving home. But he's now closer with his biological family. And uh, my wife, Rachel, she, you know, knew that uh, her father had passed away years ago. But um, she knew that her father had a brother who also passed away a couple of years ago. But a few years ago, she learned that she had an aunt, that her father had a sister half-sister that was given up for adoption and they reconnected a few years ago and now they're very close. And that woman, who happens to also be named Dorothy, my wife views as an aunt. And uh, whenever she's in New York, she lives in Arizona now, but whenever she's in New York, they make plans to see one another. And um, Dorothy's daughter ran for uh, state, uh, ran for office last year 
and Rachel, uh, Rachel and I contributed. You know, they we view her as a cousin, right? And we're really lucky that we were able to connect. That's one of the positives of DNA. And, you, you know, when Ray Liotta died, someone called in and pointed out, and I think this was a point that they were trying to make against abortion. They pointed out that Ray Liotta was adopted and he had a wonderful family and came from a very loving home and was able to pursue his uh, talents. And had he not been uh, adopted, had the birth mother of Ray Liotta made the decision to uh, give him up, uh, had to abort him instead of give up for adoption, obviously none of that would have happened. Steve Jobs, similar situation. He gave, I think it was a commencement address, very moving commencement address, where he thanked his birth mother for uh, giving him up for adoption because he was able to be adopted in a supportive, somewhat, you know, mostly supportive, loving family that was able to make him the kind of person that he was. And um, it got me thinking, seeing all these positive adoption stories, it got me wondering what other ones are out there in our audience. I know we have one listener, I don't want to speak for her, but if she wants to call in, she's welcome to, who reaches out to me all the time, and she's always telling me stories about her adoptive family and her biological family, which she met later on. And I'm curious, um, what do you consider a real adoption success story? Call me and let me know. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Maybe it's an instance of you were adopted by the most loving family in the world, and uh, you're now the uh, you're now a multi-billionaire. That's great. Uh, and maybe it's a situation where you discovered your biological parents later in life, or a biological sibling later in life, and you reconnected, and now you're as close as my friend Frank is with his mother, his biological mother, and his siblings. Um, I have another friend. He's kind of a, a public person, and I'm not going to give any details, but he um, he recently connected maybe three years ago with his biological father. And um, this was a person that had no idea that he had a child. And he, according to my friend, he would have loved to have a family. And he's got, he's a very, he, he says he strikes him as a very lonely guy and how um, he tries to, you know, include him in his life to some extent, but they don't have much of a relationship. But I thought that was so sad that here's this guy that didn't find out that he had a son for over 30, maybe over 35 years and whose life really would have been enriched by that. And it really does make me think less of uh, the kind of person that would have someone's child and not even tell them about it. I mean, I'm sure this woman had her reasons. I'm not going to judge anybody. But I don't know how you could do that to someone. So if you have a positive adoption story, after reading the story of Dorothy and her brother Don, I'm all about hearing them. 800-848-9222. Same hospital, her and her sibling born within a week, same father. Amazing to me. It's an amazing, amazing story. And I love that she has channeled this into uh, chronicling other uh, positive adoption stories And, uh, you know, exploring this both for Canadian cultural and legal issues and beyond. So I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. 1-2-3-4-5 open lines. 
Those of you that are on hold on other issues, I'll try and get to you as well. I did see another interesting article yesterday that was the polar opposite of this. And it was in Popular Mechanics. Headline, Humanity May Reach Singularity Within Just Seven Years, Trend Shows. What is that? What does that mean? What's singularity? By one major metric, artificial general intelligence is much closer than you think. So by one metric, we could approach technological singularity by the end of this decade, if not sooner. A translation company developed a metric, time to edit, TTE, to calculate the time it takes for professional human editors to fix AI-generated translations compared to human ones. And they say this may help quantify the speed towards singularity. An AI that can translate speech as well as a human could change society. So in the world of AI, which we talk about a lot, uh, the idea of singularity looms large. This slippery concept describes the moment, this is what singularity is, where artificial intelligence exceeds beyond human control and rapidly transforms society. According to this article in Popular Mechanics, which I'll share also, facebook.com slash Moranofan. So this way, if you have nothing to do over the weekend because you can't listen to me, at least you'll have plenty of reading that you can do. I uh, just posted that as well. But um, I think that's pretty scary. So who knows? Maybe we'll be reenacting the doomsday scenario or judgment day scenario from Terminator 2 in just seven years with artificial intelligence getting smarter than we are. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Paul in New Jersey. Hello, Paul. Hey. Yeah, so I have an interesting story. I'm really into uh, ancestry and um, my godson got married and I gave him and his bride DNA tests. And it turns out that his bride, both of her parents were adopted. And uh, so did she know that? Did was, she know that? Yes, yeah, she did. Because that's that. not uncommon. You know, um, Jerry yeah. Seinfeld, uh, both of his parents were, were orphans as well. Yeah. And so the interesting thing was the parents weren't really interested in finding out um, their bio parents at first. But I could right away like break down like very close relatives and um, long story short, eventually the parents got on board, they DNA tested, and the mother had an especially you know great um, uh, meeting with both of her bio parents. They were very young, they had kept in touch you know uh, all these years, and then when we first reached out through a relative to the bio father, he like Facebook messaged you know, his ex-girlfriend and said, call me as soon as possible, Jennifer. And um, and then it turns out, having grown up in Long Island, um, the the uh, this woman, Suzanne, like lived within an hour of both of her bio parents and uh, very loving and they've developed a whole big relationship. But interestingly, she keeps it separate from her uh, adoptive parents. Well, um, I understand that, too. And I know a lot yeah. of families that do exactly yeah. that because, you know, you, you don't want to kind of hurt the feelings of the family that, that raised you. Right. I mean, and right. you don't want it to be perceived as a rejection of them. But I'm glad it sounds like it was a, a happy ending all around. Yes. Yeah, that's a great. A lot of other siblings. And uh, yeah, so that was a good one. That's wonderful. I have a friend. 
um, who recent had was not adopted, and he recently discovered his birth father through uh, one of these DNA testing websites and several siblings. And I met one of the siblings, and his sister looks just like him. Looks like looks like him, and I think they they keep in touch a little bit. I don't know how close they are, but they're close enough. And you know, it's interesting when my friend found out that he was uh, that his the person that he always believed was his biological father was not actually his biological father. When he found that out, he uh, told his mom because it was apparently a, an issue, a mix-up at a, a fertility clinic. He told his mom, his mom, the, his biological mother, is now divorced from his biological father. And his mom, even though that they were divorced, even though they were divorced, said to him, you absolutely can't tell your father because this would uh, break his heart and uh, he would never be able to recover. And I believe anyway, to this day, he still has not told his biological father that, uh, well, the person that he thought was his biological father is not. So I thought that was, I think that was interesting. It's a a very interesting ethical dilemma, but I probably would do the same thing if I were in his shoes. 800-848-9222. Michael is in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank, how are you? Good. So my wife and I have uh, friends who are a gay couple, and they adopted a long time ago. Um, and they wound up being plaintiffs in the Obergefell, I think I'm saying that correctly, ah. the case where the Supreme Court decided gay marriage was sure. legal. Uh, they, were, they were part of that. And when it became codified into law um, a few months ago, they and their adopted son were invited to the White House. I think the son is now eight, nine years old. So very cool story. Uh, you know, really cool for them and great for the son. I mean, that's something I'll never forget. Absolutely. I'll say uh, that's a great story. Thank you, Michael. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have an interesting story. Um, this was a woman that I used to work with years ago, and unfortunately I've lost touch with her, but Um, Sadly, she and her husband had a child later in life, and the child died in a terrible accident. And as with many couples who lose a child, their marriage after a few years started to disintegrate because the husband, he just couldn't get over the loss of the child and wouldn't go for help. And about a year after the marriage dissolved, the woman got a letter Um, from her child that she gave up at birth, who was her husband's child, too. They were high school sweethearts. And the girl met her parents and literally helped rescue the father emotionally. He was able to cope, you know, because he now had another child. She was older, but he built a really good relationship with her. She, the adopted girl still had a good relationship with her adopted mother, but she really became part of this couple's life as well. Well, that is, uh, that is interesting. I'm I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to hear that, uh, that it worked out for them. Um, So this was a coworker of yours, you said? Yes. Yeah. And so you guys don't keep in touch these days. No, we were in touch for many, many years, and I moved away. And, you know, it's hard to stay in touch with people. We would send Christmas cards here and there. I think I got a Christmas card before COVID, you know, from them. But And, and everything was going really well. And, of course, you know, 
their child is much older, the, the child sure. who's reunited with them. But it really, the man, his, his life turned around. Right. Because, wow. wow. Yeah. So it's a very nice story. Absolutely. And she never forgot her adopted mother either. And the adopted mother was very understanding about the issue. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you shared that. Thank you, Mary Beth. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi, hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have an interesting... I, I'm not sure if it's 100% true, but I, I know of a case uh, that Jews, if they're going to adopt, uh, especially, I think, Orthodox Jews... It's recommended, I'm not sure if it's a must, before DNA tests were around, recommended to adopt a non-Jewish child. Why? To avoid brother marrying sister. Now with DNA, it's not applicable. So interestingly, about 25 years ago, I was in Chicago on a business trip, and about 9 o'clock at night when I wanted to get back to my hotel. Don't tell me you married your sister, Charles. Pardon me? No, nothing. Go ahead. What? Nothing. Go ahead. Uh, what did you say? No, nothing, Charles. Go ahead. I was just joking. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So I was on a business trip in Chicago, and 9 o'clock or so when I finished my business, uh, there was a, a taxi strike. And it took me a half hour to finally get, get somebody to give me a lift to the hotel, 10 minutes away. And it was a nice uh, – the husband was Jewish in the car driving, and his wife was next to him. She was not Jewish. I didn't know that. I had no idea. We got around to talking. And some of the name of Shan Berkowitz came around, the serial killer. And I mentioned that uh, it's pretty much unknown, but he was adopted. Just because his name was Berkowitz doesn't mean he was Jewish. Mm. And the husband said, and most people, I think, do not know that. And the husband said to his wife, you see, honey, I told you Jews aren't serial killers. She gave him <laughs> such a nasty look. <laughs> That's very give funny. It over to you. I'm sure he slept in a different bed or a different room that night. That's very funny, was Charles. An interesting Thank you. And that is funny, actually. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else we've covered. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. This is You Could Be Mine uh, from Guns N' Roses. This is a Matt Blaze selection. Um, and uh, if you ever want, it's apparently from Terminator 2, Judgment Day, a fine film. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music that we're playing on this program, just uh, join our Facebook group. We post the music in there each and every day. How do you find the Facebook group? Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And uh, it's your place for commenting on any of the subjects that we bring about on this show. And uh, just keep in mind, it's supposed to be fun. Fun. 
okay? Not supposed to be verbal warfare. And it's funny, uh, I got a message from a friend of mine who I think rarely listens to this show, and he mentions somebody in the Facebook group, right? And he says, please, please, please have so-and-so on as a guest. And it's a prolific Facebook group commenter. And I said, that guy calls in almost every night. We go to him often. And uh, I said, you know, he's a little boring and long-winded and repetitive, to be honest. It's really not good radio. I'm not going to have him in studio as a guest. And then my friend Craig writes me back, LOL, I know, it's hilarious. I'm officially anointing him a member of the Rat Pack, your version of the Whack Pack. And then I says, I don't think you listen enough to make sound judgments about who should be in. His response, he's worthy of it based off of his Facebook group postings. And then he starts quoting (laughs) some of this person's more bizarre and unhinged rants. Now, I mean, I am getting daily emails from people in this Facebook group complaining about others. And it's so funny. Sometimes people write to me complaining about each other. And I, I would say, I'd like to say, now I just ignore them. But These people have been embarrassed, Frank. They're angry. Now I want to say to them, rather than write to me, why not write to the person that you're annoyed with and try and work it out and talk directly to them? So if you want to be part of that fun, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Miranda. Now, we also have a Facebook page. Um, because that's where I post a lot of the articles that I get in terms of comments. So if you don't want to be in the group, which is more geared towards discussion, if you want to see the articles themselves, join the Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And you know what I posted on there yesterday? I posted the uh, a photo because it was Throwback Thursday on Facebook, and you're supposed to pick a throwback photo from yesterday, and Go, lo and behold, yesterday when I was looking for some of these old Pat Buchanan interviews that I'd done over the years, I came across this photograph that I took with Mark Simone in December of 2006. Now, Mark Simone is a terrific, gifted radio talk show host, and um, he was the, he hosted this show on Saturday nights that I was the producer of for about a year. It was a great show, wonderful show, and the listeners of this show, they arranged a gathering of the fans of this show at uh, Ben's Deli, Ben's Kosher Deli in Manhattan. And Mark was adamant that I had to go because he didn't want to deal with these people without me. So we both went, and uh, this is a photograph of uh, of the two of us. And I, uh, Mark decided about a year and a half later that he doesn't like me anymore, so he, we're not taking any photos these days. And by the way, he denies to this day that we have ever interacted on a one-on-one basis. So that's fine. Uh, but um, I, f- I put this photo up and I said, I wish I got to spend more time with Mark these days because we did used to have a lot of fun together. And uh, my wife saw this photo and she was outraged. She says, why are you putting up a photo of that so-and-so when and you, you look like a, um, like a jilted lover that can't get over their ex and you shouldn't be putting a photo up and saying anything nice about him. You should just move on. Go in a different direction. You know the kind of things that he says about you. But, you know, I prefer to focus on uh, on better times. And I said to somebody, a mutual friend of ours, of Mark and mine the other day, 
because he heard my comments about Frank McKay last week on a, during his birthday. And I talked about how silly it was that Frank and I didn't speak for uh, 10 years over nonsense, over nothing, over politics. And, uh, you know, this person wrote to me and says, wow, 10 years. I said, I know, it's incredible. It's so stupid. I really wish I could uh, patch things up with Mark Simone. And this person writes back to me, nobody can ever patch anything up with Mark Simone. And this is a friend of his. This person writes to me. He just keeps getting new enemies and finding new reasons to hold grudges about people. But whatever. I thought it was a nice picture of uh, of the two of us. Mark looks the same. I uh, I certainly have many more gray hairs than I did back in uh, 2006. By the way, speaking of the Pat Buchanan clips that we played yesterday, uh, if I if I do one of those things tomorrow where I find myself awake at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to go back and listen to a bunch of the other Pat Buchanan interviews that I've done over the years, because there have been dozens, and maybe post some of the other more relevant ones, because people apparently really enjoyed that hour yesterday. I happen to be listening to another radio station, my friend Arthur Idala, who's on AM 970 in New York, and he didn't tell me he was going to mention me or anything. I was just happened to be listening, and right after John Katzmatidi's show on that station, and he... Well, I'll let you listen. This is what he said. In the morning, I often listen to the podcast of the night before of my friend Frank from Staten Island, uh, who's on from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. on uh, John Katsimatidi's station, my friend who just was on right before us. And, I mean, Frank just has an unbelievable show. And, uh, you know, I'm not telling anyone to listen to it from 1 to 5, but when you get some chance... Because it screws you up. I mean, because he, he sucks you in. And all of a sudden, you can't get back to sleep. And then your whole next day, you're cursing him out because you're, you're sleep deprived. So in the morning, I usually jump on the podcast. And if any of you have some time, uh, you should listen to, I believe it was the second hour of this Today Show, where basically Frank gives a history lesson on Pat Buchanan. And I learned so much in my ride this morning out to court because I had court out into, in the Hamptons which we'll talk about in a second. So I went from uh, listening to Rapid Pulse to listening of the history of Pat Buchanan. And it was really like being in, in a history class because um, it goes back to Nixon, Ford, Reagan. And that's when he was kind of behind the scenes advisor, Pat Buchanan was. And then um, when he comes out, like kind of from behind the curtain, and he starts talking about, you know, he, he uh, was going to run against H.W. Bush. He spoke at the 92 convention. And then uh, in 96, he um, uh, they wouldn't let him speak at the convention because they thought he was too conservative. I didn't know any of this stuff like 12 hours ago. Um, and, and, you know, Morano like puts in these clips of him speaking and then Clinton speaking. And he, like, here's something that I think we lose in, in when we're not students of history. Like Clinton ran in 92, right? And he, I think he got sworn in 93 as um, basically like the liberal kind of guy. And then when he runs the second time, the, the words that are coming out of his mouth, I mean, he's like, we got to go against immigration. We have to stop government spending. I mean, he sounds like a real Republican or like by today's standards, a, a Republican. And then he went on and on um, about how much he enjoyed that hour. So if you didn't listen to that hour yet, um, you can 
check out the podcast of yesterday's show. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or you can just search the other side of midnight and hit the subscribe button. I think there was a lot of uh, healthy discussion about uh, Pat in the uh, on the in the group, and I know a lot of the uh, people have very strong opinions negatively towards Pat Buchanan. I certainly understand uh, that, but um, I'm going to over the weekend post some of the other interviews that I've done with Pat and some other clips of him on uh, cable and on C-SPAN that I found that I think people are going to be interested in over the years. If you're n- not sure why we're talking about Pat Buchanan, he re- announced his retirement from his column after about 50 years of writing it, one of the most influential conservative columnists in the country. But um, that was very nice of Arthur. I appreciate that. And that's going to be all on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Morano fan. The other thing that I posted yesterday is there is now a graphic about these upcoming shows of of, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan in New Jersey with William Shatner live on stage following the screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And the graphic does say, moderated by WABC's uh, Frank Morano, and it says for a full tour listing, go to WilliamShatnerTour.com. So you could see it and you could share it. I had hoped to be able to have a discount code for folks. So far, I'm told that only the Englewood venue is offering a discount code for our listeners. The Red Bank venue, which I have actually bought tickets to already, the Red Bank venue is not yet making one available. But we're talking to them and we're hoping that we can get them to make one available. So I don't have that discount code yet, but I will post that uh, as soon as they give it to me, which I believe should be today on uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. But the thing that I've been amazed by is the reaction to people on this. So one person, no, not one person, three people, three people reached out to me and said, oh, okay, I'll take two tickets. I'll take two tickets to the show on the 10th. I'll take two tickets to the show on the 11th. And I'm thinking... Uh, you know, I'm not Ticketmaster. I'm not selling the tickets. I'm, you know, I bought tickets just like everybody else, and now, you know, I'll be on stage. But you buy tickets from the venue. I, I'm not sure what the reaction. So one guy reached out to me on Facebook, and he says, I'll take two tickets to the 10th. And I just gave him a thumbs up back. I'm, I'm not sure what he's expecting me to do. Go buy them just like everybody else. So then someone else writes, and this is another close friend of mine and kind of a kind of a nice, you know, a very nice guy and a smart guy. And he says, two tickets to the Red Bank Shatner event, please. And again, I'm thinking I I, I wrote back to him. I said, Al, I'm not in charge of sales. We got ours from the venue. So those were the two people asking me for tickets directly, which I don't have. And then this person, the same guy that tried to buy tickets from me, and the and another person, uh, a friend of mine, asked, well, can we meet Shatner? Can we meet Shatner? Now, <laughs> I am not in a position to control who gets to meet Shatner. How do I know if you can meet him? And I, I'm going to say, I haven't responded to this one fellow yet. I did tell my other friend. I said, I'm happy to try, but... Um, he's selling the opportunity to meet him as part of the VIP experience. I think that's another $100. So 
So if this is what he's doing for money and he's selling this to people, I don't think I'm going to be able to bring a parade of all my friends to not pay and meet him. And I was explaining this to um, actually Arthur Idala yesterday because he has a friend that's a Shatner fan. And he wants to go. And I said, you know, um, I don't know if he's going to be able to meet him. I don't know what the story is. And he said, well, can't we just buy the VIP tickets and meet him that way? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, well, then that's what we'll do. I wish everybody would take that approach. Um, but uh, so that's that. I, I'm not sure why people assume just because I'm on the show that you should buy the tickets from me. Don't do that. All right. Now, I want to um, reiterate, uh, and if you want to email me, you can, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I do want to reiterate my congratulations to my new nephew, Eric Pecan. Uh Very exciting. Uh, that my, sister, Sharon, my sister-in-law, Sharon, who is um, is a wonderful person? She and her husband James have had their first child, and uh, they're very very excited. They decided to spell it Eric with a K, uh, five pounds and uh, seven ounces. He's doing great, thankfully. He's doing well, and I we spoke with uh, Sharon via FaceTime today, which is like a video conferencing software. And uh, she looks great, and uh, she everybody seems to be in uh, in good spirits. But uh, I uh, it's Eric Christopher Pecan is his full name, but it's Eric with a K, which is a little weird. It's kind of like Eric Hastings or my cousin in law Eric Rogers. I said, is that final? Is that on the birth certificate? Is that negotiable? Can I put a plug in for Eric with a C? And uh, apparently, it is final. They're sticking with this Eric with a K. So congratulations to him. A very beautiful boy, which is not surprising because both of his parents are are good looking. When uh, Sharon was FaceTiming with Rachel, I I shouted, uh, how is James doing? Is James okay?" And she said, yeah, James fine. And then I said, all right, well, make sure tell James not to overexert himself. So um, I think they're they're all going to be home uh, soon. And I think uh, Rachel's probably going to head out there to. Long Island to see the baby and everything and to help Sharon with whatever that she needs. So we have an interesting weekend uh, ahead of us. We're going to this engagement party tomorrow, which is the engagement party we thought was last Saturday. So that's one item. Tonight we're supposed to go to dinner in Brooklyn. And I was going at at a restaurant that I really love. And they're not an advertiser, so I'm not going to mention them. But it's a really, it's my favorite Italian restaurant in America. And, um, my wife is going through the itinerary because we hired a babysitter to come watch Carmine tomorrow while we went out to dinner in Brooklyn. We're going over the itinerary of who's attending this dinner. And she says, what? You're talking nine or ten people? That's too many people. Too many people. So uh, I said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe two of them will cancel. And she said, nope, nobody ever cancels. This is the problem. She said, I'm staying home. And because this is what you always do. You always over-invite, and nobody can socialize with anyone. So then um, one of these couples that was attending tomorrow, they t- have tested positive for COVID, and they will not be attending. So my wife was a little relieved to have a reduced guest list. So that's Friday, uh, and then Sunday she'll probably head out to Long Island to be with her sister. And then, um, you know, it seems like we picked the wrong time to start sharing a car. Because my wife's going to go out to Long Island and I have to come to work on Sunday night into Monday. So I'm not sure how to get here without a car. I'll probably have to end up taking the bus again. So I'm starting to reconsider this whole shared car 
situation. But uh, but it's all good. I'm sorry I can't be out there to see the baby this weekend, but hopefully we'll do it. We'll do it soon. All right. Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've discussed. Coming up, we got denunciations. We also have, very excited about this, Dan McMillan is going to be here. He's the author of a wonderful book called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. And it's a scholarly approach looking at how such a horrific event could have happened so um, in such recent history. So we're going to get into that and uh, a bunch of other issues as well. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222 on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Oh, by the way, so Sunday I'm going to be home with Carmine all day because my wife will be out visiting the the new baby. And that means uh, we are going to be in a position to watch a lot of football this weekend, which I'm looking forward to. I am supporting the 49ers. Got my throwback Steve Young jersey. It, it, it is not a throwback, though. This was a Steve Young jersey that I wore when he played. And as I was wearing it before, you know who came up to me? Rita Cosby. She said, is that the... Which Young is that? I said, oh, Steve Young. She said, you know, I went to high school with him, which I did not know. So uh, she went to high school with Steve Young and his brother. Had no idea. And so she had some interesting um, Young stories. But... Wow, um, wow, wow. In addition to the football games this weekend, the Chiefs and the Bengals and the 49ers and the Eagles, I read somewhere yesterday that this weekend is going to be the Royal Rumble, the WWE Royal Rumble. Now, if you're not a wrestling fan, the Royal Rumble is really fun. It it basically redefined the modern battle royal, right? A battle royal is where you have 20 or 30 people in the ring at the same time. And in order for someone to be eliminated, you have to throw them over the top rope. So it creates all sorts of chaos. It's fun. Who's getting thrown out? Who's fighting with one another? All these guys in the ring at the same time. But the Royal Rumble took it to a whole new concept. And they would have people coming in one at a time or two people first and then one at a time every minute or so. And um, one through 30. So it's really kind of luck of the draw. Sometimes you get lucky and you get a, a low number. Sometimes you get, uh, you know, unlucky, you draw, uh, you know, a, a low number, I should say. Sometimes you get lucky and you draw a high number, and that means you only have to stay in the ring less time. Now, Ric Flair, I think, uh, drew number th- four 30 years ago, and he still won the Royal Rumble to win the championship at the time. So it's exciting. Um, Matt Blaze, are you up on the Royal Rumble uh, this year? I have, I'm behind in watching Raw and SmackDown. I, I record it every week, and I'm a couple weeks behind. But I will watch Raw from this week and tomorrow night SmackDown. And it's like a soap opera. You just watch it once yeah, or twice, yeah, no, no, no. and you're caught up. I'm, but I'll watch it. Yeah, is it Saturday or Sunday? It's Saturday now. Oh, it's Saturday. Yeah, well, I'm glad. Saturday now. I'm glad because that won't interfere with the uh, football watching. Do you know what time this is? Usually at 7. I think they have like a pre-show now. They do yeah, like a whole, it's a whole thing now. Yeah, so I usually do my digital detox on Saturdays, and I usually don't watch, uh, indulge in any electronics until, until 10, but I may have to violate that Saturday to watch the Royal Rumble, assuming I'm back at a reasonable time from this engagement party. So we'll see where it goes. All right, 800-848-9222. We have seven open lines. We'll take your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I love Neil Sedaka. I am such a huge fan. This is one of the concerts, uh, one of the few concerts that I've actually been to and I actually really wanted to go to. And you know what I've been doing with Carmine? And I got to try and get Neil Sedaka on this show. But um, what I've been doing with Carmine is playing um, Neil Sedaka songs from his children's album. He's got this great children's album. Maybe it's about 15, uh, 15 years old, thereabouts. It's called Waking Up is Hard to Do. You know, like Breaking Up is Hard to Do. It's a children's song, Waking Up is Hard to Do. It's great. Then, you know the song Love Will Keep Us Together, which was one of his songs? He's got Lunch Will Keep Us Together. And it's, it's these great Neil Sedaka songs rebranded or re rewrote, rewritten as children's songs. He's got Dinosaur Pet instead of Calendar Girl, uh, Happy Birthday Number 3. In, instead of Happy Birthday, Sweet Sixteen, so it's uh, it's really fun. It's it's a fun little album it's called Waking Up is Hard to Do. If you want to try and get a hold of it, but Carmine seems to like it. He really does. All right. Um, yesterday, I brought to your attention a few Wikipedia curiosities. I'm going to go through a couple more, and then we'll get to your calls. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is from. Um, the uh, the cabinet of Wikipedian curiosities. Everything is true, or at least as true as Wikipedia allows it to be. In um, Burkina Faso, which is a country on which continent? No, you guys weren't paying attention. Okay. Well, in that particular country, two, it's African, by the way, in case that ever comes up on the $1,000 Minute, Two members of the jazz band, listen to this. This is a totally true story. I got so hooked on all these facts that I had to then go research all of them, and these are all true. In Burkina Faso, two members of the jazz band, Toot Aku, that's the name of the jazz band, Toot Aku, two members of the jazz band both became 
leaders of the country, with one overthrowing the other in a 1987 coup. The fact that the band name contained the word coup was a pure coincidence. Does that blow your mind? That blew my mind. I didn't believe it. I had to go research it. But sure enough, two members of the jazz band Toot Aku both became leaders of, of Burkina Faso. One overthrew the other in a coup. Really, just so interesting. There is still no convincing explanation for the spontaneous outbreaks of, you ready for this? Involuntary dancing from the 14th to the 17th centuries. Isn't that interesting? Um, th- you know what acoustic kitty is or was? Acoustic kitty was a plan, this is true, by the CIA to spy on the Soviets using cats wearing microphones who would wander into embassies. That was a plan. I don't think they ended up doing it, but it's a miracle we won the Cold War with plans like that out there. Um, The United States and Canada almost went to war over a pig. Uh, 1859, despite being referred to as a war, there were no casualties on either side except for, of course, the pig. According to Josephus, this is going to blow your mind, blew my mind, Jesus Christ, you know, the Son of God, came back to life, was on the cross, did that whole thing. Jesus Christ had a unibrow, a unibrow. Can you imagine all the artistic depictions of Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen one with a unibrow? I may have to go and... um, and create some AI art. And we're going to be talking about Hitler and the Holocaust in our last hour. Did you know that there is a a, a regional politician in Namibia who is named Adolf Hitler? And he is not to be confused with Dr. Gay Hitler, a dentist from Ohio. And uh, so uh, I'll give you just two more, two more, because maybe not everybody is as interested as uh, as I am in this. Um, Literally at no point did the Confederacy use the flag that is commonly referred to as the Confederate flag. Isn't that interesting? And then I'll make this the last one, because honestly, I went down such a rabbit hole with these. This was just really just so interesting. Um, this is, uh, okay, here, here, I want to end on a good one. There's no one, no, no, that's not a good one. The, it's false. This is good. It's false that chickens can survive for several minutes after having their head cut off. They can survive for a year and a half. Mike, Mike, the headless chicken was a male chicken that lived for 18 months after his head had been cut off. Oh, my God. And after his head was cut off, this poor chicken achieved national fame until his death in March of 1947. 
in uh, a town in Colorado, they do an annual Mike the Headless Chicken Day every May. So what happened was, and it's kind of a sad story, but at least this chicken lived. The farmer in September 1945, Lloyd Olson of Colorado, was planning to eat supper with his mother-in-law, and he was sent out to the yard by his wife to bring back a chicken. So Olson chose a five and a five and a half month old chicken named Mike. I just don't understand naming animals you're going to slaughter and eat. I just don't get it. The axe removed the bulk of the head, but it missed the jugular vein, leaving one ear and most of the brainstem intact. Due to Olson's failed attempt to behead Mike, the chicken was still able to balance on a perch and walk clumsily. He attempted to preen, peck for food, and crow, though with limited success, his crowing consisted of a gurgling sound made in his throat. Ugh, so bad for this guy. When Mike did not die, Olson instead decided to care for the bird. He fed it a mixture of milk and water via an eyedropper and gave it small grains of corn and worms. And then uh, he began a career, this chicken began a career of touring sideshows in the company of people like uh, the two-headed baby and other people. This chicken was photographed. He was featured in Time magazine. He was featured in Life magazine. He was put on public display for a cost of 25 cents. I don't think I need to say this, but kids, do not try this at home. Denunciations in a moment, and in its International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we'll talk about it with Dan McMillan. Seems an important time to remind you, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, because if you have done something wrong, it is your day of reckoning, probably. Uh, Without further ado, it is time for me to call shenanigans on those that are responsible for shenanigans. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. I must denounce a Utah plastic surgeon by the name of Dr. Michael Kirk Moore, Jr., a board-certified plastic surgeon in the Salt Lake City area, he and three of his associates sold fake COVID vaccine cards for $50 apiece in a scheme that lasted more than a year, during which they destroyed more than $28,000 worth of vaccine doses. Now, I I mean, I don't want to get into a whole ethical debate about people getting fake vaccine cards. I, I don't think that's the biggest deal in the world at this point, honestly. But if you're actually going to destroy all these vaccine doses, this is crazy. So um, this Dr. Moore falsely claimed uh, to be giving people proof of vaccination in exchange for cash payments 
or donations to an unspecified charity. So under the scheme, Dr. Moore destroyed the real vaccines, noting that many child patients were given saline shots instead of vaccine doses at their parents' request. This guy is, I don't want to say he's a monster, he's certainly a jerk. Dr. Michael Kirk Moore, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Amazon. Yes, every week Amazon does something that's worthy of denunciation. This week is no exception. Amazon is in trouble with OSHA, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which claims the company violated the uh, safety laws and failed to keep workers in three warehouses safe. The regulator, OSHA, also proposed $60,000, over $60,000 in penalties related to the violations, which is unlikely to make Amazon managers cry too much, but it is one of the highest OSHA has ever issued. These three warehouses located in Florida, Illinois, and in New Windsor, New York, exposed workers to ergonomic struck-by hazards in the location, putting them at high risk for lower back injuries and other disorders. They blamed the, the, the pace that Amazon insisted its warehouse employees follow. Everything I hear about Amazon from a worker's perspective seems like this is an awful company to work for. So uh, Amazon, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Atlantic Council, one of the foremost neocon think tanks out there. This think tank, the Atlantic Council, which is very quoted widely, it's very well respected, they are a walking conflict of interest. And I am highlighting this because I believe there are a bunch of other think tanks that fit this same description. Now, think tanks have been notoriously slow to implement some of the same conflict of interest policies and disclosure commonly implemented by journalists, scientists, academia. But now, there's been a rush of retroactive disclosures of conflicts of interest in written material published by the Atlantic Council. And it's raising all sorts of questions about whether the council and other think tanks are poised to more vigilantly disclose potential conflicts of interest between their funders and the work products. So the Atlantic Council receives funding from foreign countries, including countries like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Japan. And South Korea. Okay, all right. And weapons manufacturers. Isn't that interesting? That the Atlantic Council is getting all this funding from weapons manufacturers, and they keep writing piece after piece about how we have to arm the Ukrainians. And, by the way, specific funding from Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, the biggest financial winners in this whole Ukraine war. This poses serious conflicts of interest for a think tank that characterizes itself as non, a nonpartisan organization that galvanize, galvanizes U.S. leadership and engagement around the world. Yes, you might be nonpartisan, 
but you're pro-military industrial complex. Uh, so they have started to disclose some of these pr- prior conflicts of interest on January 16th. This is outrageous. And I-, I am mentioning this not only because I wanted to announce the Atlantic Council and make sure that you know so much of the garbage that you end up seeing on TV or radio or in the newspapers about this rush to have America uh, go to war with Russia here is the result of think tanks that are purchased by these weapons manufacturers. You know, it's like that old saying in in Watergate and all the president's men. I don't know if Deep Throat really said this, but in the movie he did. Follow the money. Where do these think tanks get their money? I was talking with someone. I don't want to say who because I don't want to get her in trouble. But I was talking with someone yesterday, and she works for a think tank. And... They were doing a report that was critical of someone. And the someone said, well, what if we had you guys disclose your funders? And the person that was sharing this with me said, oh, isn't that outrageous? Can you believe this person said that? I said, yes. I I would love to know what the the funding of that particular think tank is. Because I suspect there is a direct correlation between... The funding that that particular think tank is getting and the reports that that think tank is issuing. And I suspect they're all like that. The, you know, all this discussion of the deep state, if you read the book, The Deep State, which is by Mike Lofgren, who's not a right winger, who's not a Trump guy at all. You can read it. It's really interesting. Think tanks are an essential element of this of this deep state, if you want to call it that. It's really the, the role that they have been been playing in public policy over the last 40 years especially is a significant one. And yet it's one that never gets talked about. Never gets talked about. And it's not an ideological thing. There's right wing, there's left wing, there's other, there's there's libertarian, there's little niche issues. You can bet anytime you hear a media commentator or a politician or anybody go on radio or TV and they cite a statistic that is from fed to them from a think tank directly or indirectly. I want to denounce. So uh, Atlantic council, I do denounce you. I want to, uh, I want to denounce the January 6th committee. And I, there was a very good question. Um, there was a bunch of very good email questions that were sent in for ask Frank anything. I'm going to answer those on Tuesday. We have a lot of good questions I'd like to keep the Ask Frank Anything for the phones as long as people are still calling in. But there was a lot of very good Ask Frank Anything questions, including one about the January 6th committee. So the person, I think her name was Jacqueline, that wrote that that email. I'm going to address that on Tuesday. But I am uh, denouncing the January 6th committee not for their report or anything like that, but for how they handled the personal information of South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. So they um, she's the governor of South Dakota, and they leaked her cell phone number in the January 6th committee and and put it out there. And so it was hacked. Now, can I say with certitude that whoever hacked her phone number and got her phone number Got it because of the uh, January 6th committee putting it out there into the public? No, I don't know for sure. But I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that 2 plus 2 probably equals 4. 
And even if that wasn't the rationale or wasn't the precipitating factor in her phone number being hacked, it was still wrong for them to do this. This is doxing, basically. And someone that is a public figure, especially someone that's a a woman and considered a a presidential candidate and someone that's very attractive and could be the target of a lot of creepy guys, shouldn't have to worry about her phone number. No public official should. No person should have to worry about their phone number being put out there for all the world to see. I mean, I don't think that's too much to ask from that January 6th committee. But apparently it is. So January 6th committee... I do denounce you. I must also denounce the state, oh, excuse me, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Kentucky has been ranked by WalletHub as the worst state in the entire country to retire in. That's right. They looked at three key dimensions, health care, affordability, and overall quality of life. And Kentucky is dead last. You want to know about the best state to retire in? Virginia. Number two, it's not going to surprise you, Florida. Florida. Uh, So Kentucky, I do denounce you. And I must denounce the Scottish prison service. Now, I'm all for treating prisoners not just humanely, but well. I think prisoners should be treated well. But let me go out on a limb here. If you're a man and you're convicted for rape, you should not be able to be housed at a women's prison. Period. And yet that is precisely what is going to take place in Scotland with transgender double rapist Isla Bryson, who is going to um, this, this. He is in an all women's prison. And. This person uh, was named Adam Graham until three years ago. Now, after this has been exposed, he will be moved to a male wing of a male prison. But he transitioned and they moved him to a women's prison. Um, this is just crazy. And just 24 hours ago... They were still defending this decision to have him housed in a women's prison. This is nuts. This is a rapist's dream. Now, thankfully, somebody at the Scottish Prison Service, I guess, was shamed into this. But my problem is that they not only put him into a women's prison, but then defended it. Um, Byron's, excuse me, Bryson's estranged wife told Mail Online that her former partner's transition was a sham for attention and he was bull-blanking the authorities to avoid a male prison. Critics said the rapist was a threat to female inmates. I mean, the fact that this only changed when there was media coverage shaming the Scottish into doing something about it is very telling. Um, I want to denounce... In light of Pope Francis's comments this week, where he said that um, laws criminalizing homosexuality are unjust, and I completely agree with him. He did this wide-ranging interview with the Associated Press, and he basically 
said it's not right. He called laws criminalizing homosexuality fundamentally unjust, and he made clear that in the mind of the Catholic Church, being homosexual is not a crime. So in light of the Pope's comments, I want to uh, denounce all of the countries that, uh, that criminalize, criminalize homosexuality. There are 11 countries where you get the death penalty for homosexuality. I mean, you talk about backwards countries. What is going on? So if you're one of these countries, I'm not going to name them all, but it's, it's a really frightening list, honestly. Uh, and there are a lot of other countries. There are 68 other countries that have some other degree of criminal penalty for homosexuality. Uh, so I'm denouncing all these countries. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name them. They, they vary, but they should legalize being gay. They really should. Let give people a choice, right? Or at least not throw them in jail or give them the death penalty. I don't think that's too much to ask. I must denounce sitting. I feel bad about this because uh, I'm sitting right now. I enjoy sitting from time to time. And, you, you know, for a while they were saying how sitting was the new smoking. I've never believed that, and that's not the case. But there was new data uh, that shows that the impacts of prolonged sitting do have a deleterious effect on your health. It can increase the risk of chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, even certain types of cancers. But here was the good news that came out of this study. Uh, This is from the uh, Journal of the American College of Sports Medicine. They said, and this makes sense to me, and I hope this is accurate, and that's one of the reasons I'm mentioning it, because a lot of us that have jobs where we're forced to sit for prolonged periods of time, we don't really have a choice. They say, according to this, uh, this study in the American College of Sports Medicine, that five minutes of light walking every half hour can help alleviate some of the increased risks that come with sitting for long stretches of the day. So if you have a job where you're forced to sit at your desk for a long time, get up and walk around for five minutes every half hour. They say that'll undo some of these horrible health effects. But sitting, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Brittany Reynolds. Speaking of North Dakota, which we were doing earlier, Brittany Reynolds was a topless woman that went into a Catholic church in North Dakota this week, and she smashed a statue of Jesus. And shockingly, Brittany Reynolds was believed to be under the influence of narcotics when police found her shirtless, brawless, and shoeless. So that's... About as surprising as the sun coming up later today. And finally, I believe I hope I'm pronouncing this woman's name correctly. I must denounce Hai Zhuang Shin of New Brunswick, New Jersey. This is a 29-year-old woman who was arrested last week after she spent four days fraudulently enrolled in a New Jersey high school as a student. I I know that there was a Drew Barrymore movie like this uh, where she's a journalist and she masquerades as a high school student and uh, it's charming and uh, it's supposed to be fun. I think it's never been kissed. Yeah, it has never been kissed. But this is fraud. 
And there are a finite number of school seats. There are a finite number of school resources. And if adults are fraudulently taking up a school seat, that's a a seat that a real student can't have. And why was she doing this? Not only has she been charged with one count of providing a false government document with the intent to verify one's age, um, meaning she showed a false birth certificate, but what was her real motivation here? So um, thankfully, the staff members in a few days were able to uncover some of this woman's ruse, or at least determine that it was a ruse. But uh, this is ridiculous. Adults should not be masquerading as high school students. Fake IDs go both ways. And then uh, finally, no, that was finally, okay. Uh, And that concludes this week's edition of Denunciations. If there's anybody that I didn't denounce or if there's anybody that you have a comment on that I did denounce, you can go ahead and give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll talk with Dan McMillan about the Holocaust in about 40 minutes. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. By the Exciters. Uh, Matt Blaze, what's the uh, what's the significance of this song? What are we playing this for? It's a cool song, no? Yeah, no, no, I know. But I feel like we uh, we have a lot of songs that have been in the queue for a while. Just curious <laughs> what, what, what the rationale for for this one was. I heard this earlier and I was like, wow, I think I want to play this tonight. Because it's, it's a cool song. I thought you, you might like it. Okay. No? Yeah. No, I, I've heard it. It's good. Certainly good. Um, then, uh, by the way, so I... I was posting uh, this uh, Shatner invite on Facebook, and you could see it at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And I posted initially, I kind of did it in a hurry. I said, please join William Shatner and I in New Jersey on February 10th. Now, a bunch of people pointed out within minutes, and I'm glad they did because I wouldn't want a dopey mistake like that out there. Um, They pointed out within minutes, it's please join Shatner and me, not Shatner and I. So lo and behold, someone else just writes on there, proper English, if I may chime in, Shatner and I. No, Edith Lowe, it's Shatner and me. The other naysayers were correct. So there there you have it. All right. Um, By the way, uh, if you want to chime in on anything that we are uh, commenting on, you could do so, 800-848-9222. This is the first Friday in a while where because of the changing dietary restrictions, of our staff here, where I did uh, not purchase pizza, which uh, was pretty good. You know, this p- the pizza's getting pretty expensive, and it's not necessarily the, um, you know, the best thing for anybody's waistline. And um, I, I, I told everybody that if they wanted, I would happily uh, purchase something else that they wanted, 
but this is unheard of for a radio station. They all made their own arrangements to have bring food in. So we did not you have tell to purchase me. any food. Yeah, you're in the group chat on WhatsApp. I am not. Yes, no. you are. I don't have WhatsApp. Well, yes, you do. I do? Yeah. You're, he, there are three members of the He doesn't have the app. You know, you're a participant. Oh, you, I'm, I'm in there, but I don't have the app, like, I guess, running or even signed on in my new phone. Well, whose fault is that? Downloaded. But even still, I didn't answer anything. Well, here, here's what Alex said on your behalf. Oh. Yeah, I, so here's, I said, first, do we have a meeting tomorrow? And mercifully, Alex said we don't. And that means uh, we don't have a meeting scheduled, so I won't have to wait around for two hours and uh, and not have a meeting anyway. And I said, uh, because of our changing food situation, I'm not going to order pizza tonight. If you guys want to order something else, I'm happy to pay. Alex responds, in, he says, fair enough, I appreciate the offer, but I brought in food and I think the other guys did as well. Now, you're on this chain. But, but I didn't answer, and why is Alex even speaking for me? Well, you know what? You shouldn't have went out of your way to mention that you were no longer eating pizza. Would you check your phone? <laughs> and, and what kind of for like five seconds? Please? He doesn't have the app. It's not even on, Just on my phone. Download it. Why? What's I think the problem? It is downloaded. But even still, it, it has to be downloaded because I wouldn't have been able to add you to the chat if you don't have WhatsApp. Well, if I would have signed up for WhatsApp with my phone number, then it, I guess it would pop up. No. Well, no. If you have the notifications set to pop up, then it would pop up. I'd have to look at my WhatsApp, but in in anyway, it's how did, how did what did you say you'd be happy to pay for it? Yeah, what kind of invitation is that? That's like saying that's like the that's that's inviting us to go. Nah, we're okay. No, it's not. You didn't say like, no. hey guys, yeah, I'm picking want... up some food. Guys, want anything? No, you could get because look, you have I don't know what you're eating now. Th- this guy doesn't <laughs> eat dairy, right? right? The the Kenneth. True. So, w- w- I mean, what am I supposed to do? Like, Did you pick up anything for yourself? No, no. Matt, Matt's eating rabbit food. That's now. what I'm saying. Yeah. You didn't, not like you went. So, in other words, we would if if I would have said, you know what, Frank, I could go for a nice Caesar salad. Then you would have come on and said, oh, I had to go out of my way. I had to go to this pizzeria and find a Caesar salad <laughs> yeah. from that place. I, I would have Kenneth had to get yeah. something non dairy. Right. I would have gotten a whole you, thing. I would have gotten you a Caesar salad. I would have gotten uh, him a dairy free Caesar salad. All right, to that other caller that called uh, Mike in New Rochelle. I'm definitely not keep, keeping Matt Blaze. He, if I get, I get to choose one, Matt Blaze is out. He's out with his uh, Caesar salad, and he'll be wondering. He'll, his firing notice will be delivered by WhatsApp, so he'll still be showing up to work. Right. Blah, I have no blah, idea blah, what's going blah, on. Blah, blah, Maybe blah. next week I'll ask for uh, halal food because that yeah, way I can. Okay. Uh, See, that's you know, that way I Mom. can. Uh, I haven't. I haven't eaten it in a while. I need to. I need, you know. He'll I need to making, get back into it. He'll be making three bathroom visits an hour if you get that. <laughs> No, hello food is not that bad. Well, you, yeah, is it, it like spicy? You want to mess up your stomach? Spice does not mess truth up your stomach. Truth be told, I've never had hello. Really? Truth be told, I am not the least bit surprised. Yeah, truth be told, you're you're not that smart either. So, you oh, know. come on. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, uh, me wow. not having halal oh. affects my intelligence? No, that's yes. that correlation <laughs> is not valid. <laughs> it does uh. actually. That's why I'm that's why Frank said that I have the best brain. Out of everyone on the no, staff. No, no, no. He said you're the quickest and most efficient with things. No. You're Frank? He, oh, well, yes. No, he did smart. say that. He's a smart guy. I said he has a good good head for talk topics. I did say that. Bing. I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, but I exactly. think you should refrain from making comments about other people's intelligence, though. Well, we'll see. Yeah, that's a little brash there. Yeah. Well, he did the same thing with Herschel Walker during the campaign. <laughs> this guy. While he's delivering news about Herschel Walker, which, you know. Absurd. A lot of people might say that's, you know. A little biased. Uh, a little biased. So. Yeah. Oh, well. 
Um, but uh, how are you doing with no pizza today, Matt? I'm fine. Good. I'm fine right. with no right. pizza. So that's a lot of complaining for someone that's fine. Well, I'm fine, but I wasn't asked because I heard You it. were asked. You were asked. That's so. the third problem. Right. So I, I give up. I give up. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> Us three knuckleheads. Right. This is the, uh, the sec. Uh, yeah, don't. Yeah, what's. Uh, I'm sure this will come up on the. Um, Less interesting side of midnight podcast. hundred percent. How, how is that going? Going very well, by the way. Yeah. So people can get it at Red Apple Podcast Network. Red Apple Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast, it is available. So and you can you just search search darker, darker side, side and you will find it. And it is about today's episode, which will be recorded right after we get off the air. Here we record it, and it gets posted by I'd say six a.m. Yes, sir. All right. And um, if, do you have any idea how many people are listening? You don't have to say, but uh, do you know the numbers? Um, I know the numbers. They're not bad. I mean, yeah, pretty good. for the first week, right, two okay. weeks. All right. But, yeah, everybody subscribe. If, you listen to the, if you're listening to the other side of Midnight Podcast, then you should also listen to the darker side of Midnight uh, Podcast. Absolutely. Can't disagree with that. All right. Well, good. Enjoy that. Check out the darker side of Midnight. Um, all right. By the way, that this conversation in the last five minutes is the uh, second most annoying thing that has happened to me today. Or, yeah, today in the last 24 hours. I don't know what happened. I don't know when it happened. But I think it must have happened last night when I was at that dinner that Pat Russo was kind enough to invite me to at uh, uh, the, for Il Centro. I must have bit my bottom lip. The f- the bottom lip, for some reason, I've got a, a a sore or like a bite mark on the bottom my f- bottom lip in the front, and I have been biting it all day. You know what what happens when you you bite you you have like a sore on your lip or your mouth or your cheek or something the interior part it's then swollen a little bit and because it's swollen you're biting it all all day. And that has been happening with me. So my wife and I got uh, tacos last night, even though it wasn't a Tuesday, but she didn't feel like cooking. I didn't have time to cook. Neither of us did. You know, we're busy with uh, show preparations and uh, people asking us for Shatner tickets and to meet them and all sorts of other things. Um, by the way, I, would ne- I still just can't get over this. I would never ask someone, oh, hey, by, by the way, uh, you're, uh, you know, John Katsimatidis it hangs out with you know, millionaires all the time and celebrities and billionaires. Never once have I ever said to John, you know, I'd like to go and meet that person when there's an option to just pay $100 and meet them. I mean, who are they? But fine. But uh, we were eating these tacos, and I kept biting the bottom portion of my lip. And it is killing me all day. And so I just drank a cup of coffee, and it was a hot cup of coffee, and as I'm I'm drinking the coffee, it's burning that bottom portion of my lip and irritating it even more. So I, I don't want to put I know that you could put ambisol or something on there, which is sort of like a numbing agent. I'm not ready to do that because it's such a uh, it's such an unpleasant taste, and I'm sure it'll go away tomorrow anyway. But it has made my entire life far less pleasurable. Over the last 24 hours, I'd say. So that's where we are. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Brooklyn Johnny, the same Twitter user that says we have no young people, 
um, listening to this program, which we proved him wrong. There were all sorts of young people listening. Uh, he then tweets in response to the denunciations, I denounce you for not denouncing Dr. Michael, Cor- Michael Kirk Moore's sale of fake COVID vax cards, but only denouncing him for destroying actual COVID vaccines. A distinction without a difference, you doofus. That's, I'm the doofus. Now, Brooklyn, I'm not going to dispute that I'm a doofus. I may very well be. But for you to say it's a distinction without a, a difference is idiotic. Because, um, look, if someone wants to use a fake vax card, I, you know, I, I get it. I don't agree with that. I don't think people should do that. But I, I can understand why people want to do that. Just as when you're 20 years old and you want to get a fake ID, I can understand that. I cannot understand at 29 years old getting a fake ID to impersonate a 16-year-old. But, okay. But if you're actually going to destroy valuable medicine that people want and that people are lined up for in certain corners of the world that could potentially save their life, that's a big difference. You know, one is fraud. The other is destructive, and uh, I think there is a big difference. So, you know, you're welcome to call me a doofus, but uh, that is the way that I feel. I am not moving off that one. All right, uh, you want to join the Facebook group and um, uh, debate, you know, whether or not Matt Blaze is a doofus for uh, not checking his WhatsApp, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. I uh, I saw some interesting numbers that I'm going to share with you in a moment. And there is a fascinating case that it looks like the Supreme Court is going to be uh, determining. It's called Tyler versus Hennepin County. Have you heard anything about this yet? Well, it's really very interesting. I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I will remember you. Will you remember me? Don't let your How clearly I first saw you smiling in the sun. I want to feel your warmth upon me. I want to be the Ed Helms, who was great in uh, The Office, who was great on uh, in the films The Hangover, especially that first one. It was his birthday yesterday, so this is actually Ed Helms singing now. And uh, I'll tell you what, he's got a great voice. A really terrific voice. All right. Have you followed the case of Tyler versus Hennepin County? This is one of the cases that I am going to be most looking forward to seeing how the Supreme Court rules on this. And I think they may do the right thing on this. So who's Tyler? 
Mrs. Tyler is 94 years old. And the Supreme Court is uh, hearing this case. Basically, um, this is a situation where Mrs. Tyler fell behind on her taxes, as happens, right? She's a 94-year-old widow, and she lives in Minnesota, lives alone, and she was doing just fine into living in this one-bedroom condo that she owned in Minneapolis. That was until 2010, when a rise in neighborhood crime and frightening incidents near her home alarmed her and prompted her to hastily move to a safer area where she rented an apartment. So once Geraldine moved, she could no longer afford the property taxes on her condo in addition to the rent on her apartment. So the taxes piled up. And Mrs. Tyler accrued $2,300 in debt. And in 2015, when the total tax debt, including penalties, interests, and interest and fees, was $15,000, Hennepin County, Minnesota seized the condo and sold it one year later for $40,000. So nothing that I've just said should surprise you at this point. What do you think the county should do? Well, what I would do, first of all, I mean, you try to find a way to keep this 90-year-old widow in her home, but what I would do is you take the $15,000, use it to pay the taxes, the interests, and the penalties, and then you refund the rest to this woman. Oh, no, no, no. So they seize her condo, sell it one year later for forty grand, and instead of keeping the $15,000 they were owed and refunding Mrs. Tyler the rest, the county kept all of the $40,000. State law allows Minnesota counties to keep such windfalls at the expense of property owners like Mrs. Tyler. This is not an isolated incident. From 2014 to 2020, some 1,200 Minnesotans lost their home and all of the equity they held for debts that averaged 8% of the home's value. This is nuts. And what's more nuts about this is Minnesota is not alone. There are several other states that allow you to, uh, I'm going to call it, steal someone's home. And the Supreme Court is now hearing this, and I, she's being represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation. There are more than a dozen states that engage in this sort of home equity theft. And the Pacific Legal Foundation found that homeowners across the country lost more than $777 million in life savings on more than 5,600 homes above what they paid in what they owed in tax debt. Understand what I just said. What they owed in tax debt was paid, and then another $777 million was robbed from these Americans. On average, homeowners lost 86% of their equity. This is, I I am embarrassed that I didn't know the extent of this. 
I knew they could take your house if you fall behind on your taxes, right? I kind of never thought, oh, what happens when they sell the house? I am incensed by this. Here is Christina Martin, who we may invite to be on the show to talk about this case. She is the senior attorney on the case. She's with the um, with the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation. This is what she said. Yeah, definitely giving up uh, Matt Blaze in that uh, scenario that Mike outlined. Still M four, still M four, and to that oh, other. Most people that this happen to, happens to can't afford to pay for an attorney because they can't afford to pay their property taxes. And it's often the elderly. It's often people who are sick and just unable to defend themselves. Um, fortunately, my organization, Pacific Legal Foundation, saw this issue. We got involved and we found that over $777 million in equity was stolen over the course of just a few years. And um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's actually a lot more. We were only able to sample just a, a part of the total problem in the country. Is there any way these? It's is outrageous, and it's still outrageous that I don't have the ability to play my own audio, which we're working on. If we ever have a post-show meeting again, this is going to be item number one on my agenda. Believe me, this is crazy. Home equity is private property. And so when Geraldine, she hooked up with the Pacific Legal Foundation, I guess they're kind of a libertarian-ish legal institution, and she sued to vindicate these rights um, because, you know, you have a right uh, to be exempt from excessive fines. So she sued to vindicate those rights, and a federal district court dismissed her case. And the federal court said the very act of forfeiture wipes out an owner's property interest. In other words, unlike most states, when owners lose their property to tax foreclosure, they have no property rights left to defend. This is crazy. Home equity is private property, and it's just as protected as a home or land. Government can't avoid its obligation to pay fair compensation for a property's equity by simply saying that the home equity doesn't exist. So I am hoping that um, that the Supreme Court does the right thing on this. This poor woman is 94 years old. She lives in an assisted living facility, and I give her all the credit in the world for fighting back, not just for her, but for everybody that is in a similar situation and everybody that will be in a similar situation in the future. Home equity theft cannot be allowed to be considered constitutional. So hopefully the Supreme Court does the right thing on that. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We've been paying pretty close attention to this uh, this migrant crisis. Let me give you some numbers uh, because there there are... I'm going to go through the Ukraine situation on Monday. A bunch of people have been writing to me about all these tanks we're sending to Ukraine. I'm going to save that for Monday because there's a lot uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and maybe we'll do it with some some experts as well. But uh, this is a story that I don't feel has gotten much attention, and I want to share it with you. Authorities say they have seen U.S. authorities say they've seen a 97%, and if you want to comment on anything we're talking about, you're welcome to, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. 
U.S. authorities say they have seen a 97% decline in illegal border crossings by migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And you say, well, wait a minute, 97% since when? And what's causing that decline? Ah, a 97% decline in illegal border crossings from those places since... Mexico started accepting those migrants. Isn't it amazing? Mexico uh, changes its policy. They say, all right, we'll accept them. And all of a sudden, we're able to keep them from breaking in. The numbers come just weeks after the Biden administration announced a new policy to accept 30,000 people a month from those countries combined, but also pledged to quickly expel any migrants who tried to enter illegally. Border crossings by migrants from those four countries have skyrocketed in the last year. U.S. authorities had been stopping, listen to these numbers, an average, average of 3,367 migrants from those four countries in the week that that ended December 11th. In the seven-day period that ended on Tuesday, you're talking... Less than two months. So 3,300 people average in the week ending December 11th. In the seven-day period that ended Tuesday, the number dropped to 115. That's huge. So we've seen a situation where the migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, they were coming into the country at at least... Well, I mean, there were probably more coming in. These are the ones that were caught. 3,300-plus coming in from those four countries alone in a week, and now that's down to 115. And the only thing that changed was Mexico changed its policy to now start accepting these people. So um, that's pretty interesting. This announcement uh, came one day after Texas and 19 other states sued to stop uh, humanitarian parole for citizens of those four countries who apply online and fly to the United States and find a financial sponsor. So um, it is very interesting to see how one simple change or several simple changes can change our whole, the whole nature of the immigration problem. Right. And or the illegal immigration problem more aptly. Dan McMillan is here. He's going to talk to us about his book. How could this happen? Fascinating book about the Holocaust. Now, you think about the Holocaust and think of how recent this was. This was not 500 years ago, not a thousand years ago, not 200 years ago, not even 100 years ago. This is 20th century. This is when people had cars. And this was in um, Western civilization. It was not in some backwards place. This is Europe. And why did it happen? We're going to get into that with Dan McMillan in just a bit. Uh, Speaking of the Holocaust, and maybe I'll ask Dan about this when uh, when he's here. Because I'm preparing for my uh, upcoming interview with William Shatner, and if you want to get tickets, I don't have a discount code to offer you yet, hopefully tomorrow, you can go to William Shatner Tour. Dear Frank Morello. WilliamShatnerTour.com. One of the things that I'm doing is re watching or trying to re watch or planning to re watch 
a lot of the um, the William Shatner TV shows that he's done, movies, so that I can ask intelligent questions and questions that people haven't thought to ask. Last night, for instance, we watched the um, William Shatner roast on Comedy Central. I watched it because my wife doesn't like it when they're mean to one another. She doesn't like the insults, so uh, she made me turn it off when she was around. So when when she went to shower, I finished it. It was very funny. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that are in that roast are no longer with us. People like uh, Nichelle Nichols, Betty White, Leonard Nimoy, and uh, and others, uh, Fred Willard. But uh, it was really well done. But I, I said, let me go and research what critics think are Shatner's best movies of all time, meaning his entire career. And do you know what number one is? Number three is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the film that we're going to be showing. Number two is the Andersonville trial, which I'll be honest, I've never seen. And I'm going to see it in advance of February 10th. Um, It's directed by George C. Scott, actually. But number one I have seen, and I agree with this. It's directed by Stanley Kramer. It's from 1961. It's Judgment at Nuremberg. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but on International Holocaust Remembrance Day... I can't think of a better picture to watch. The acting in this film is phenomenal. Not only is Shatner great in it, probably his best role, but Marlena Dietrich is in it, Judy Garland, Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster. It's an incredible cast. And it's a dramatized version of the, of, of the Nuremberg trial for war crimes held by the U.S. authorities after World War II. And you have four German judges who officiated during the Nazi regime and they're tried before um, this, you know, this trial judge for crimes against humanity. And uh, here's a scene from Judgment at Nuremberg, and I believe Shatner is in this scene. Sir, are there any questions? Yes, yes. You're West Point, aren't you, Captain? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. What's your first name? Harrison. Harry. Well, Harry, look, I'm not West Point. And all this formality kind of gets me down a little. Not to say it puts me ill at ease. Do you think it would be too much of an infraction of the rules if you were to call me Judge or Dan or something? Okay, Judge. It is, I mean, that is a pretty, you know, inconsequential scene or line of dialogue. But it's a great picture. And if you're a Shatner fan and if you're interested in learning more about the crimes, the war crimes that took place in the um, during the Holocaust... Check that film out, Judgment at Nuremberg. All right, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Rich on Staten Island. Hello, Rich. Good morning, Frank. Morning. And, uh, Montgomery Cliff had a great role in that movie as well. You know, I'm so, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, and uh, shame on me for not mentioning him. He is great in that. He's great in everything, but especially that. Yes, and uh, Frank, many countries, particularly Ireland's, uh, when they went to the European Union, how to change the immigration rules. And one of them is that we have here, and it deals with the anchor baby. And they had to change it where if you were born in that country, does not make you a citizen. You have to be your parents. I guess now you have to say poor parents has to be a citizen of that country because they had uh, many problems with welfare fraud, whereby people were just coming in, having a baby and declaring citizenship in more than one country and claiming welfare benefits. And you can see how many people, many, many females coming across the borders are, are pregnant and they're having babies here, and it's automatically making them a citizen. And that would, I would think, have to be curtailed to try to at least try to halt 
some of that immigration. Oh, well, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, uh, they call it uh, birth tourism, where you, you have a lot of mothers, especially a lot of Asian mothers, but I'm sure this takes place in countries all over the globe, that come here with the expressed intention of exactly what you just described. And um, it's, it's a big problem. It is a huge problem. And uh, if you wanted to try that in Mexico, if you wanted to go and have a child down there in Mexico and say, all right, uh, our child, my, our child is now a citizen. The Mexican government would go tell you where you have to go. Now, the big question is whether that has to be done through a constitutional amendment or whether uh, you can do that simply legislatively. Um, wh- whatever the case might be, I think it certainly should be curtailed. It's crazy. I mean, it's it's a crazy situation that leads to um, uh, that leads to an unsustainable situation. As far as I'm concerned, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rich. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two on Facebook as well at facebook dot com slash Morano fan. I have the article up there about how close we are to a singularity. I've got that article up there about this woman in her sixties who met her brother who was born in the same hospital a week apart from her. And uh, we've got that uh, Mark Simone photo up there. And if you want to uh, join our Facebook group. You can certainly do so. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. All right. Very excited. Dan McMillan is here. Uh, He is a very learned man. He's a Ph.D. and an attorney and a scholar, former prosecutor, former professor, and he's written a terrific book called How Could This Happen? It's International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So we're going to get into how does something like this happen in the 20th century? Could it happen again? Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Friday, last hour of a Friday show. Usually we tend to keep things uh, pretty lighthearted. And we are going to do the opposite of that this hour because of the gravity with which uh, we're going to approach a subject which requires a great deal of attention and thought. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And the thing that's amazing about the Holocaust is not only uh, how uniquely tragic and and horrific it was and how uniquely violent it was, but to me, the thing that I can never just get over is how recent it was in history. I mean, this did not happen in 2000 B.C. This didn't happen in the 1490s. This happened less than a century ago which is just astounding. How does something like that happen in modern society? Could it happen again? Why does it happen? Well, a gentleman who 
has explored a number of those questions and has written a book about it called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust is uh, Dan McMillan. He is a, a man of a resume that's longer than most phone books. He is a PhD. He's a political expert. He's a former prosecutor. He's a former professor. And uh, for the purposes of our discussion today, he's the author of the book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. Dan, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you, Frank. Thank you for the gracious introduction. Uh, Just so folks understand how you came to uh, study this subject and approach it, what sparked your interest in Holocaust studies initially? You know, I read I read a book about it when I was 12 years old in 1972, the, the Murderers Among Us by Simon Wiesenthal, and there were there wasn't a lot published back then, and it it kind of knocked me flat, and I you know I couldn't explain why at the time, of course, but I've come to understand, and it took decades to really figure this out, that what it that really what it that it hooked me, what it affected me is that this was the most extreme assault on the idea that human life, individual human life, has value. I mean, every war, every genocide, the killers dehumanize their victims, human life gets cheapened. But in the Holocaust, it, I mean, the killers themselves stated, and with great pride, that an individual human life is worth nothing, and not just a, a Jewish life, a German life also. I mean, they they murdered something like 300,000 German mental patients just to save money. And this is the only time in history that that this has happened. And I think it could have – it's interesting because you mentioned earlier centuries. I think this is something that actually could only have happened in the modern era, partly because um, it was the sort of – what they thought was their scientific understanding of race that allowed them to say that different ethnicities are – each ethnicity, Jews or Germans or Poles and so on, each is a separate race with its own genetic markers, and some are more valuable than others. And and the fact that the that confidence and scientific certainty also helped them to come to this really horrifying belief and kind of complete moral nihilism. I, th- uh, I think a lot of people, I think everybody listening, has some basic understanding of what the Holocaust is but the thing that I love about your book, how could this happen? Is that it really gets into an in-depth scholastic exploration of the how and the why. Uh, you have a chapter in the book, uh, basically, why Germany, right? And now I remember during various Arab uh, civil wars over the years, you hear a lot of people in Western media say, "Ah, that's just the Middle East. That's what they do out there. You can't bring civilization to the Middle East." Germany was not exactly a barbarous civilization yeah. that had a history of civil war, anarchy, and violence. Germany, uh, well, what was Germany like before the Third, the third Reich? Culturally, governmentally, what was it like? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, German society and culture was perhaps the most, the most culturally advanced, the most, in some ways, the most morally elevated um, the most celebratory of human dignity. I mean, their ideal of education was kind of the most exalted idea. Now, the 20s, however, politically, they were very troubled because they'd been essentially an authoritarian system in the empire. The empire falls apart in the last days of World War I. And Germans, however, are very uncomfortable with democracy that gets established because it had been the Socialist Party that was the big advocate for democracy. And so for all these Germans... Socialism, which they hate, 
is equated with democracy is democracy gets off to a very bad footing. So the whole 20s were very unstable, and then they get clobbered by the Great Depression, and that gives Hitler his opening. But all in all, I mean, just to sort of generalize your question, Germany was, if you were to ask, this is something historians very often say, if you were to go around to anyone in Europe in, say, 1930 and say, you know, in, in 10 years, a European country is going to set out to murder every Jew in Europe, which country do you think it is? Germany probably wouldn't come up. People would say Russia, probably. So why Germany? Why did it take root there? Was it the failure of the democratic system coupled with the failure of the economy and uh, allowing for, for some great demagoguery? Why Germany? I think the single most important reason just is that, that the democratic form of government got established so late and that, that it was fragile enough to um, to give someone like Hitler an opening, I guess. But, but I guess sort of digging into that a little bit deeper, um, I guess one way to, to answer your question is that um, – the the thinking the think the anti-Semitic thinking that really directly motivated Hitler and the people who supported him was this was that Jews were the source of Marxism, you know, Marxism communism that's a Jewish plot and and that wasn't just in Germany that they believed it but it was really strong in Germany because Germany you know the last thirty years up to the war World War One you have an authoritarian government that's fighting off pressure for democracy that's coming from the Socialist Party. So anti-Semitism became the chief political weapon of Germany's elite, of really the, all the upper classes of German society to fend off democracy. This socialism is a Jewish plot. And that really kind of set up, uh, basically paved the way for the creation of, of Nazi politics. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not really, I'm not approaching this quite as efficiently as I could. Hey, uh, and what, <laughs> but what I, you know, what point I want to make, Frank, though, is that one of the because the Holocaust has frightened us so much, and because we all want to believe that we're not capable of this. For the first, you know, fifty, sixty years after the war, you had generations of historians. Everyone is looking frantically for a way to say that this is a unique German pathology, um, because then we can say I'm not capable of this because I'm not German, and. I guess there are reasons why this could only have happened in Germany, and yet they really don't tell us anything about German culture. They don't tell us anything about the Germans. Uh, altogether, generalizing about the Germans as a people is – I mean it's bad to do – it's kind of foolish to do that about any country, but especially lame to do that about the Germans at this time because the German, Germany was an especially diverse country, you know, geographically, socially, religiously – Economically, that you know, it exists. Had only become a single country in 1871, and it developed in these different ways. So, talking about the Germans, I mean, people used to talk about. There were books titled "The German Psyche," "The German mm. Mind," "The German Character." But at the end of the day, it's a silly kind of idea because there's no such thing as a German brain or a Chinese brain or an American brain. There's a human brain. We've all got it. So, I guess what I'm going with this, Frank, is that focusing, focusing, I mean, why Germany and is there something pathological about the Germans has driven like the bulk of research into German history since World War II. And yet at the end of the day, it's really kind of barking up the wrong tree. 
the I think a lot of folks listening have an understanding of the final casualty numbers of the yes, Holocaust, yes. and they've seen images of yes. uh, of uh, concentration camps and things of that nature. Seen a lot of great films that have depicted this, films like Schindler's List and and elsewhere. But tell me how it began. How did we go from uh, the Nazis taking over the government in Germany? to uh, the end result of six million lives plus lost. How did it start? Well, you know, initially the plan that Hitler had, and this was already something that German nationalists before World War I were thinking is, we just have to neutralize Jewish influence in German society because the, the belief was the Jews weaken us as they weaken every country. They divide and conquer us by fostering Marxism, by encouraging ideas of class struggle, workers against the upper class. So we basically, we, we removed them from jobs. We kicked them out of the media. We eventually stripped them of their citizenship. By the end of the, the, end of the 30s, the, the basic policy of the government lets abuse them so badly that they want to emigrate. And they all would have emigrated. Uh, the main problem was that we and other countries didn't want to let all that many of them in. Uh, because of anti-Semitism and because of the Great Depression, you don't want competition for jobs. Anyway, what happens then is that World War I begins in 1939. The Germans conquer Poland. Suddenly they have 2 million Jews under their control instead of you know the 150,000 remaining who are German and Austrian. At that point, the forced immigration solution is just not going to work. And at that point, they begin to think, the, the policy evolves in a more genocidal direction. And they're thinking, well, well, we'll create a reservation. And, yeah, this reservation in eastern Poland, probably there's not going to be enough for them to eat. A bunch of them are going to die, but it's not quite flat-out genocide. Then they, they, they defeat you know, the French and British forces in 1940 in Western Europe. And suddenly they've got really – and they have influence in southern and eastern Europe – and then they start thinking, you know, we could kick all the Jews out of Europe. We'll send them to Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, which is this inhospitable island. It's kind of a desert. And a lot of them are going to die. And it's kind of in steps. And then the really fatal, the real turning point, Hitler decides to invade and destroy the Soviet Union. He's wanting to do all along. And at that point, because the whole level of violence, the body count is escalating so dramatically – sort of the inhibition on killing kind of falls away completely. Also, an additional Jewish population comes under their control. And kind of in that way, then I guess what, what happens there is that um, they take the argument, they tell themselves the Jews are communists, therefore they will be saboteurs behind, behind the lines of our advancing troops, and they send in these mobile shooting squads right behind the lines of the advancing German army as they invade the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And by the, by the end of July, they're basically shooting whole Jewish communities, man, woman, and child. And then from there, it further evolves. Hitler seems to have reached the decision in October uh, to, to, for what they called the final solution to the Jewish question, which is to murder every single person of Jewish ancestry on the European continent, 11 million by their count, which was an overcount. I think one thing I want to underscore about that is that every other genocide I've studied, the people who did it kind of felt like they were cornered and had to do it. Like the Turks felt threatened by the Armenians. Mm -hmm. The Rwandan Hutu felt threatened by the Tutsi, and, and it wasn't irrational. Hitler and his crew 
did this not because they felt they had to. They did this because suddenly they saw that they could. And it wasn't out of fear. It was almost more in a meaning of joy. It was like, I am, it is, it is commensurate with my historic greatness as this great leader of Germany that I can accomplish this task that no one before has ever even thought of um, to, to forever rid the world of the threat of communism by eradicating the Jewish people. And that is, I guess, another way, a thing that is distinctive about the Holocaust. They did it because they wanted to, not because they felt they had to. And we're talking with Dan McMillan, author of the book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. We're going to try and take some of your questions throughout the hour. If you have questions, you can dial at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You alluded to the fact that uh, it wasn't just Jews that were killed during yes. the Holocaust. Uh, you mentioned mental patients. Is there anybody else that was uh, exterminated during the Holocaust that uh, people may not exactly be aware of? There, you know, I, I think the biggest group that most people are not aware of is Soviet POWs. 3.3 million died in German captivity. Wow. And, and what's particularly amazing, the first six months of the war, the German armies advanced faster than they – well, they didn't advance faster, but they ended up capturing 2 million Soviet troops – in the first six months of the war, in the, as they were advancing to Moscow, they hadn't expected that many prisoners. They hadn't made plans to feed them. Now, they could still have fed, fed them. They could have changed their plans, but they just decided it was more convenient, and they also didn't want to impose food rationing back in Germany, which would be back for morale. So they just decided to – they basically penned them into open enclosures out in the middle of the grassy plains, the steppe, and then just didn't feed them anything, did give them any shelter, and let them. And be, by March of the next year, all all two million were dead of starvation and exposure. But the American POWs that were captured by Germans, they didn't meet that. Kind oh of no, fate? no, no! Uh, Western, basically Western Western POWs, the death rate was about one percent, and that was pretty much. The death rate of, say, Germans in American captivity might have been about 1%. So why such a different treatment for American POWs versus Soviet POWs? Really racial difference. It was racist thinking. Mm-hmm. The, um, the war in the West was conducted more or less during, according to Geneva Convention rules, but in the East, it was a war of extermination. It was a race war, and it was also because Hitler's plan, the reason, one of the reasons he wanted to invade, you're, you've heard the term Lebensraum probably. Mm-hmm living space. And the idea was Hitler's view was... We need breathing room. Well, breathing room, living space, what it was that, you know, history, and it wasn't just Hitler thought this way. The leaders of of a lot of countries thought this way. This was the rationale behind colonial empires. History is the struggle, the Darwinian struggle for survival between races. And weak races perish or eliminated, and the stronger races flourish. Uh, and this is good for humanity. It makes it it promote it improves it's a, us. A, almost uh, Darwinian, fittest, Darwinian like, thinking. It is absolutely it's racial Darwinism. And Hitler's view was: we Germans, we are the finest race, but they're not enough of us, and we don't have enough resources. So the idea was: we're gonna t- we're gonna conquer all the Western Soviet Union. We're gonna kill twenty to thirty million of the people living there, and then we're gonna populate it with German farmers. Ukraine is going to be our breadbasket. We're going to have coal and iron, and our war industries, our war-making potential will be massive, and all these German farmers will breed lots of young men for the wars of the future, for our armies, and we will become big enough to be invulnerable. That was the fundamental concept. 
And so part of that built into that concept was the assumption already before the invasion, you had these documents say, well, in this process, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 million Slavs are going to die out in the first year. Um, And that's another example of what I said about they decided that human life had no intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we could go back and get 10 or 15 of these guys around the table and we'd ask them, we'd be, we'd be terribly anguished. Why in heaven's name are you doing something so cruel? Dollars to donuts. They would all answer with a shrug of the shoulders. They would ask us, why not? They're just people. Uh, you know, I'm a, a student of uh, electoral politics and different yes. electoral systems, and we've had a lot of conversations off air as well as on air about uh, the nature of, uh, of electoral politics. And the question I'm about to ask I, might be beyond the scope of the time that we have today, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. One of the things that, um, you know, I, I've always been an advocate of some version of proportional representation. And yeah. one of the things that opponents of proportional representation have pointed to for the last 70 years, and I believe inaccurately, is that proportional representation is what allowed the Nazis to take hold of the German government. As somebody that studied this, as somebody that looked at this, is that accurate? Did proportional representation allow Nazism to take over the government? It's You, you would definitely have to say that it's a factor. I mean, I think if Germany had a two-party system that was basically created by the kind of electoral laws that we have first past the post where there really aren't opportunities for third parties, then Germans would have been forced into maybe two major parties and sort of compromise with each other. And that's kind of what happened post-World War II. The problem was during prior to, you know, during the first Republic is that you have basically five, well, six sort of major party directions. Uh, You know, you had Catholics and then you had two flavors of conservatives um, a liberal party, you know, socialists, and then communists. And each of these party groups had kind of a distinct sort of social base, you know, in certain neighborhoods and associations, Catholic clubs for the Catholic Party, Socialist Party, and so on. Anyway, the proportional representation made it possible to fragment the parliament so much, it was very difficult to create a governing coalition. And at the end, I mean, the Nazis, at the end, they they – got the highest vote total of any party. They still had only third of the vote in the final elections. Um, but it was impossible to create a governing coalition out of the other parties, mm-hmm. and that's how Hitler got into power. So there is truth to that, in fact. It, the, um, you alluded to what happened in Rwanda and the Armenian genocide. Yes. Just in terms of body uh, count, if you were to pick the uh, second most atrocious genocide in the history of, of the world – what is the second? Well, you know, I think in some ways there is a special horror to the Rwandan genocide because it was so quick, 100 days. It was half a million victims. People often say 800,000, but that's an inaccurate account. I think the best number is, is a half a million, but that's a lot. And um, that it was people murdering their own neighbors. Um, and in fact, because you know, the, the, between Tuts, you know, Tutsi and Hutu – these were artificial categories. They really mm-hmm. basically looked alike, spoke the same language. Um, often there was a lot of intermarriage. You had people killing like their own relatives mm. uh, in this, and it was completely out in the open. And what uh, was the final yeah. casualty count of that Rwandan genocide? Rwanda, again, about a half million people, well, half a million Tutsi, yeah. It, it, you uh, explore the question in the book, how could this happen? 
And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dan McMillan. It is uh, Dan McMillan. It is uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. You explore the question of why Hitler? Why yes. why was Hitler able to do this? How did he uh, gain a foothold in uh, the leadership of the Nazi Party? And why was he able to inflict such a historically unique brutality? This is a, this is Hitler. Here you're, you're you're touching on something that's really so important, Frank. Because it helps illustrate the incredible importance of coincidence, of happenstance, of, of bad luck in history. Uh, and because Hitler's one pr- really principal political talent was public speaking, and you can't deny it. He was electrifying. So that made him kind of the, the, a prominent leader. That's how he took over the Nazi party. He was the one who got members, got people to rallies. Um, he then gets into office, and then what happens is – really far more through dumb luck than through skill from when he hits off, gets into office in January of 33 until German armies fail to take Moscow in December of 41. He has an eight year run of spectacular successes. Uh, and I'll just need the two mm-hmm. that are most. And what, but basically the effect of these successes is the German people came to believe that he was superhuman, uh, which he also came to believe himself. Uh, he came to believe his own myth, and it, it catapulted him into a position where he was able to imagine such a radical policy. But the two successes that were so powerful, first, that Ger- he comes to power, Germany, unemployment is 30 percent. It's the worst. We had 25 percent. We were the second worst, 30 percent. And within four years, they had a labor shortage. Now, the reason for this was not that Hitler understood economics. It was because he was hell-bent on taking Germany into a major war as soon as he could make the country ready. So he pumped money into armament spending um, against the advice of his economic advisors. He basically did Keynesian economics without understanding it by accident. Now, the German people had no no idea – if they knew that he was planning on a war, they would have rejected him. Because they that just was, saw the unemployment They knew rate. their job back was mm-hmm. back, and while, while French and American and British workers did not have their jobs back. And the second uh, was even more astonishing was in the spring of 1940, you know, the, the Hitler, you know, World War I begins in, in September 39. Germany conquers Poland at that point. World War II. World War II, I'm sorry. Thank you. And France and Britain declare war against Germany as they had threatened over the invasion of Poland. But there's no fighting in the West. And then in May of 1940, the Germans invade. And everyone – the German people are terrified. Oh, my God. It's, an, it's World War I all over again. We're going to – I'm going to lose my son. I'm going to lose my brother. I'm going to lose my father, you know, and so on. And the plan that Hitler had and that his army general staff had for starting that war in the West – was based on the failed plan of World War One, and it was what the Allies were expecting, and it would have probably led to a stalemate. And But what happened was kind of in the last moment, a couple of very enterprising tank generals, Guderian and Manstein, figured out that you could get tanks through the Ardennes Forest uh, in Luxembourg and Belgium. Everyone else had thought that the Ardennes was impassable to armor, so the French and English had no defense. Mm. on the western border. But Guderian scoped out a network of logging roads. And at the last minute, Hitler had been pressing for an invasion all fall on this un, you know, this plan that would probably have failed. And it, the plan kept – the invasion kept getting postponed because of bad weather because they wanted they, – they, which grounded the planes. And they wanted to use the air support, which they'd pioneered. 
And that gave Manstein enough time to present Hitler with this creative kind of gambling, risky plan. And Hitler adopted it, and it worked like a charm. And basically, they, they invaded on May 10th, and by May 20th, the German armor had hit the English Channel. They cut the French and British forces in half, cut them off from their supply lines. They defeated the French and British forces, drove them off the continent at Dunkirk at the end of May in only six weeks of fighting, and they lost only 30,000 German wow. soldiers killed. So those uh, are the two major successes, the military success and the economic I mean, in, success. In 1940, that was a miracle. Sure. Because in, 19, in World War I, they fought the same enemies for four years. They lose two million men. They lose the war. Hitler could do no wrong after that. We're going to take your calls uh, in just a moment. 800-848-9222. I think we're going to forgo the $1,000 minute uh, for today <laughs> just so we have a, a little bit more uh, more time with uh, with Dan McMillan. We'll continue with that on uh, on Monday. Um, if, you want, if you have a question, I have a bunch, but if you have a question, uh, please call in 800-848-9222. The book, and we're not even scratching the surface of the really terrific sp- scholarship that uh, Dan's responsible for in this book is How Could This Happen? It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Every man bleeds for the countless victims and all their families of the murdered, tortured, enslaved, raped, robbed, and persecuted. Never again to the men, women, and children who died in their struggle to live, never to be forgotten. Ruben Ben Menachem, yeah, my own blood, dragged through the mud, perished in my heart, still cherished and loved. This is a uh, terrific song. Uh, this I actually know the artist responsible for this uh, pretty well. This is a song called Never Again. It is by Remedy of the Wu-Tang Killer Bees. And Remedy, who uh, used to rent an apartment from my mom. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, and I knew before he was a, he you know he was a big rap star, which he has subsequently became, is a Jewish rapper, and this was his first, and I knew him as Ross, right before he was uh, uh, known as Remedy. This was his first big song. Uh, it's called Never Again, and it is a, an honest to God rap song about the Holocaust. And if you look at uh, some of the lists of um, best popular music about the Holocaust, this song is always at or near the top. It uh, it came out, I want to say, in the late 1990s, and as part of the Wu-Tang Killer Bees album, 
It is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I can't recommend it enough. And it's a great way to uh, teach younger folks that might be into rap music, especially if they like Wu-Tang, about some of the different aspects of the Holocaust. We're talking about the Holocaust because it is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. My guest in studio is uh, Dan McMillan. We've talked to Dan before about uh, some projects that he's working on to improve American democracy. But uh, we're talking primarily about his book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust, which is probably the most readable scholarship uh, exploring some of the causes and the history of what went on in the Holocaust, even if you have a, uh, a high school education, you'll be able to understand a lot of uh, all of what's in this book. Quite frankly, uh, we're going to get to your calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Dan, one quick question about yeah, World War One, yeah. and its um, you know effect on World War Two. One of the things that a lot of people have said over the years is that the reparations that Germany was yeah. saddled with. And the the fact that they had to publicly accept responsibility yeah. for World War One that not only was demoralizing for them, but it, it created such a horrible economic climate that it was going to lead to a demagogue like Hitler to take place. Is that a view that you share? Well, yes and no. I mean, the 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 war guilt clause that they had to accept that they were they and their allies were at fault for the war was deeply humiliating and as part of what enraged people about the treaty. Um, and at the time, you know, you know, economists, including John Maynard Keynes, I think it was his first book, predicted this, the reparations will cripple the German economy. As a practical matter, though, the, the pace at which they ended up having to pay the reparations, economists now say that this really did not cripple the German economy. Nonetheless, however, at the time, that was a perception. And because the new democratic government got blamed for the treaty and the loss of the war, you can say that that perception in that way did list, help contribute to Hitler coming to power. That answers your question. Sure. No, absolutely. It does. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, sir. Uh, two quick two-part questions, sir. Do you happen to know the numbers of Roma or gypsies who died in the Holocaust? And number two, do you agree that one reason why the six murder camps were established in Poland, we're talking Majdanek, Belzec, you know, those camps, yes. is because even the Einsatzgruppen, hardened killers, uh, just went psychologically bonkers at the constant massacres at Kamenetz, Podolsk, Baba Yar, and other places, that Himmler and Heydrich were very worried about what was happening to their men. They were, they, they were getting drunk. Uh, they were alcoholics. Is that why you think that it went industrial? Uh, you know, both good questions. As far as the Roma, you know, you often call gypsies. The most common figure I've heard is about 220,000, mostly by the shooting squads. As far as what you, you what you raise about the death camps, that was a very often stated rationale, for example, by Rudolf Hurst, the, the Auschwitz commandant, at his post-war testimony. Um, I think the main reason, though, that they established the camps is they just wanted an, an additional way to kill more quickly. Uh, it is true that some of the men in the shooting squads uh, did find the work uh, upsetting to a point, and, yeah, abusing alcohol was sort of part of their – Routine, nonetheless, basically, uh, they could have done the whole thing by shooting, and they they would have happily done it all by shooting. I think it was just, um, I mean, it did make it psychologically easier for them. It also made it quicker. It was more efficient. It was more lethal. You needed less personnel using the camps. Um, 
But I think the notion that the, sh- the men of the shooting squads really couldn't handle it psychologically, unfortunately, they really were cold enough, I think, emotionally, that actually most of them handled it pretty well. Obviously, there are millions of people in Germany at this time, yes. and uh, very few people in the leadership of the Nazi party and the Nazi government. What did most rank-and-file Germans that were living in the country at this time actually know about the horrors that were going on at the time of the Holocaust? You know, that's one of the most fascinating questions. I think that, first, at a minimum, I think every German got information, got stories from soldiers in their family who came home on leave about the mass shootings in the East. Um, Probably, on the other hand, not that many Germans could understand that this was a Europe-wide process. Uh, Indeed, I think even within the government, uh, I don't know how well that was – widely that was understood, not least because it was – it's nothing like that had ever been done. It was inconceivable in a way. I think one other thing I think you would also say is that in every town – where there was still a Jewish population, then when it came time to deport, uh, as they called it, deportation to the east was the cover story. And the deportations took place in broad daylight. These Jews slated for deportation would carry their luggage, walk to the main train station in the town in broad daylight and board the trains to their deaths. I think their neighbors all knew that this was a death sentence. And I've had a couple of German friends whose, whose relatives told them that during the war. Um... There was a ton of information about the killing in Germany uh, of all kinds, including uh, very frequent statements by the government on national radio. Uh, there's one you know, famous statement, Robert Lyde, the national labor leader, who said, we will not stop until every Jew in Europe is annihilated and is dead. But on the other hand, uh, it's, it was so hard for people to really understand and believe um, – that although people had a ton of information, on the other hand, how many people really process that into knowledge? It's a much smaller number, not least because it's something that people really didn't want to know and also could not mm. do anything about. 800-848-9222. Peter is in Harlem. Hello, Peter. Yes, I've known Holocaust survivors, and some of them tell me stories that when, if this is true now, uh, Hitler allowed them to leave, they refused to leave because they figured they were German. Do you have any, have any information on that? That's, that's an excellent question, Peter. And, I'll hang and, up and listen, okay. And, I, and um, you know, well, it's true, first of all, that, that Jewish Germans very much considered themselves German first and Jewish second, and were, were very, they were 150% German. They were very patriotic. They identified with German culture. In Germany was probably the European country where where Jews were most assimilated uh, and where intermarriage rates with Gentiles were very high. Uh, On the other hand, really by the late 30s, the government had made conditions so brutal for German Jews that uh, I think the great bulk of them wanted to emigrate. And really what – the only reason why they didn't all get out is that we in other countries didn't want to accept them, that we we had an immigration quota – and and this was true of every other country. There simply weren't enough countries willing to take all the Germ- all the Jewish German refugees who wanted to get out. I know you mentioned uh, the Jews being kind of scapegoated for the the spread of communism and Marxism. 
Why else were the Jews the target of Hitler's enmity? Why was he able to convince people that the Jews were the source of Germany's problems and the world prob- world's problems? Why the Jews? Well, I think, you know, I think the, the, these conspiracy theories that, that really begin to take hold after the turn of the century, but especially after the end of World War I, about an international Jewish communist conspiracy – where Jews divide and conquer every society by using Marxism to pit the classes against each other. This, in a way, is kind of an echo of the centuries-long demonization of Jews in Christian theology, because you have to remember that Judaism is the parent of Christianity. It's Mm. a rival of Christianity. And already in the Middle Ages, uh, both in Protestant and Catholic theology, there is really this idea that the Jews are the spawn of Satan. In fact, they often would not see the Jews, they would simply see the Jew, as if it's a single impersonal Mm -hmm. evil force. And I think that this long history, uh, even though it wasn't Christian anti-Semitism that motivated the killing, it paves the way, it makes people receptive to this idea that the Jews are this evil, ominous force. I think the other factor is simply the astonishing record of Jewish success in every field of endeavor. And in particular in Germany, Jews were so had such an impressive um, presence in 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 cultural life and in the media. Of the three major newspaper chains in Germany before World War One, uh, two were owned by Jewish, also in book publishing. And for conservatives who were battling the rise of the Socialist Party, their theory was always well. The German workers would be happy with their life if it weren't for Jewish agitators, mm. and the Jews used their power in the press to feed Marxism to German workers. And if we can only neutralize the Jews and their influence, then this Marxism would go away. So that's really kind of how it happened. But I mean, this belief that the Jews are the sponsors of Marxism, very strong in our country, Henry Ford. Uh, published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is one of these conspiracy theories in the Dearborn Gazette, serialized. And of course, in the fifties, you know, the trial of uh, Julius Charles Lindbergh subscribed to. A and lot Charles Lindbergh was yeah. a, was a vicious anti-Semite. And uh, the trial of the Rosenbergs in the early fifties um, for having supposedly sold atomic secrets to the Russians that played into that narrative in a disastrous mm. way mm. for American Jews. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Kathy is in the East Village. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Frank and your guest. Um, a couple days ago, I watched this PBS three-part series, and it was the United States and the Holocaust. And there was a lot of stuff. It showed from the very beginning, the first part, you know, people sort of knowing what's going on. Then in the middle part, kind of knowing what's going on. And third, how uh, responded to it. And uh, they interviewed people who survived i just can't even imagine the fear like just each step and there's like footage that's just the footage that you can see now of all this it's mind-boggling like death camps and mass graves and uh i don't know it's just very um it's very upsetting uh, did you happen mm-hmm. to see that uh, documentary? Uh, I, I actually didn't, but it's it's an issue mm-hmm. that I've studied and am familiar with, and it's a it's an interesting question. I think one one thing that is that is it's it's a very good story that bears on your question earlier, Frank, about what the Germans knew and understood. Mm-hmm. Is that Felix Frankfurter, who was a senior advisor to Franklin Roosevelt and Jewish, 
um, there were some um, resistance fighters who managed to escape from Auschwitz and make their way to America and gave a detailed firsthand report uh, to Felix Frankfurter. Um, and Felix said to, to this man, he said, I am unable to believe what you are saying. And another member of the Roosevelt administration said, Felix, you can't say to this young man that he is lying. And Frankfurter said, I did not say that he is lying. I am saying that I am unable to believe what he is saying. And this is, this is the kind of the point uh, that I was saying earlier is that there can be a ton of information about this, but the effort to completely eradicate a branch of humanity, essentially as if the Jews were a virus, because that's really how they saw the Jewish people. It's a virus. We'll stamp it out everywhere so it will never grow back. This had never been done. It was inconceivable. And so even when you're confronted with a lot of detailed information and credible firsthand reports, you still, until you actually had the post-war footage, the video, the, the bodies, it was kind of really very hard for anyone to, to fully assimilate and, and believe. Uh, I could talk with you about this for five hours, but I Me want to too. squeeze yeah. in a, a, couple <laughs> of, uh, a couple of questions before, before we run out of time. One is um, – one of the things that we – there was an article about a year and a half ago about all of the American monuments and statues in the United States yeah. to Nazis, right? And a lot of them happen to be around Ukrainian Orthodox churches and oh. uh, things of that nature. I'm wondering – and th- well, this is one of the I- issues that I do take with Zelensky in his constant uh, reframing of his conflict as the Holocaust Part Two. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can speak to the Soviet role of the of the uh, the, the Soviet role in the Holocaust, either as liberators or in terms of battlers of Nazism. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what was happening in Ukraine at the time, because there's so much misinformation around these two questions now. Okay. I'm wondering if you could straighten us out on well, that. Well, I think with reference to Ukraine, one of the more important sort of episodes is the famine of 1932-33, which was effectively engineered by Stalin. Partly it was just to confiscate grain from Ukraine, um, to use the the agricultural surplus to sell the grain and so on. Partly it was also to crush Ukrainian nationalism, and 3.9 million Ukrainians are believed to have starved to death. As far as the Holocaust and the war, uh, one of the most important avenues, possibilities for survival was... Um, Jews who ended up in the Russian part of Poland and when the Germans invaded or before they were invaded were shipped east. Um, and it was ultimately really the only thing that the most important uh, factor or the most important group of people who brought the Holocaust to the end was the Red Army because it was the Red Army that did 90%. It was the Red Army that broke the back of the Wehrmacht that did 90% of the fighting and dying against Nazi Germany, and it was really only – the only way that the Holocaust was stopped was to overrun Germany. And that's so, still uh, – the, they, they still celebrate that in Russia to this day, at right? The Great Patriotic War, and, and one has to say, I mean, Stalin was, of course, a monster, but the contribution of the Russian people to the human future by defeating Nazism is really a great and heroic contribution. The other thing yeah. I want to ask you – and. I get calls uh, repeatedly from people that are unabashed in their anti-Semitism that will really? blame oh, the Jews uh, for everything. And by and large, I don't. I try not to take the calls, but um, I do 
like to take them once in a while so people can still see how prevalent anti-Semitism is today. Yes. And I, I'm w- wondering if you can speak to Holocaust denial. Um, one yeah. of the things that we see about uh, these days quite often is folks refuse to acknowledge or argue with Holocaust deniers because they don't want to give any life to their arguments. You want to give them oxygen. What is the basis of Holocaust denial and uh, and how prevalent is Holocaust denialism? Holocaust denialism is a worldwide movement with tens of millions of adherents. Um, where why is it possible? I mean, why is the whole? I mean, and what do they believe? What, do the, that the six million people really didn't die? I mean, what is the basis? I mean, I've heard I think different. There, there are different versions of it. There are some people who say that the death count was vastly exaggerated. There are people who claim that it just didn't happen at all. That there were no gas chambers. That this is implausible. Um, and the interesting question is, but it's a fascinating question because. You know, there are no French Revolution denialists or Protestant Reformation denialists. This is the only historical event we deny. And, you know, I have my own theory, you know, and I, I think it's really – well, I think there are two reasons. One is that the causes of the event were very complex, and you need a book like mine that really gives you an overview. And frankly, most people have not had access to a kind of clear explanation. And unless you get an explanation that really lays out – you know, how these factors fell into place to make this possible, it is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. I think the other reason is simply the Holocaust frightens us. Why does it frighten us? Because it goes to the heart of really the question of how we find what, if anything, do our lives mean? In a in a secular age, I mean, I don't know, Frank. Are you are you a devout Catholic? Are you uh, I identify more as an Episcopalian. Is it Episcopalian? Oh, really? Yeah. I was I was baptized I'm... Episcopalian, but I wasn't raised religious. Well, I'll put I'll put it to you this way. I mean, one of the most important problems that all of us face, even though most of us don't really think about it explicitly in our lives, is you know, I, you know, I'm born, I'm on this planet for eighty years, I'm forgotten within three generations. Does my life have meaning? You know, Tolstoy said, you know, what meaning can my life have that will not be annihilated by the death that awaits me? Now, if you if you have religious faith, you've got an answer. You know, you're 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 beautiful because you're made in the image of your creator. Your life has meaning because God put you here on earth for a purpose. But if you're someone like me who's not raised religious, you're not made in the image of your creator, you're a glorified monkey clinging to an asteroid. And your existence is an accident, and the possibility that your life is without meaning, you face it alone. Now, in practice, I think most of us, and I certainly, although I've actually had to think this through, we find meaning on a human scale by loving other people, by trying to be a good person, by treating people right, uh, by feeling that the world is a better place because I lived in it. And the Holocaust is a devastating assault on that answer. Mm. To this question, to this vital question, because first of all, these this ruling class of this advanced society says flatly, no, who cares if you treat people right? People don't matter. And secondly, if we're capable of doing this, then how lovable are we anyway? And that I think I think the reason is that there's some that people accept denial is that 
is exactly that. That's the nerve that this touches. That's why this is the only event that frightens us. I can't prove this, but that's my theory. Well, no, it's as good as theory as anything I've heard. The book is called How Could This Happen? Its author is Dan McMillan. Dan, we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight uh, as we wrap up the week let me give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds 800-848-9222 it's time for the other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame neo hey there's kids on the subway that set that man's hair on fire why don't we set their mother's hair on fire so the mother will start parroting again and know what it's like mike good morrow frank uh, NFL playoffs, as a kid, Philly, I uh, called them Filthy Delphia as a Met fan, Jet fan. I hope the 49ers and the Chiefs going to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. I'm with you. Mike. Morning, Frank. Did you hear Zelensky's phone call to Washington and Berlin? Tanks for the tanks. Will I get a photo on my phone and a notification on my Alexa when they arrive? And are there free returns? Brandon. An episode of the 1950s to tell a secret. Two twins were separated, one in New York, one in Miami. Had the same scars, smoked the same cigarettes, and sent each other the same gifts on Christmas. And finally, Gary. Trump just said the following. First, it's the tanks. Then, it's the nuke. Time to stop this war. Now. I'm with you on that one, Gary. It always worries me whenever we agree. All right, I'll be back Monday. Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.